You're an animal. Yeah? What are you? You think love is simple. You think the heart is like a diagram. Have you ever seen a human heart? It looks like a fist wrapped in blood. Go fuck yourself, you writer! You liar! You go check a few facts while I get my hands dirty. She hates your hands. She hates your simplicity. Listen, I spent the whole of the last week talking about you. I know all your little ways. Anna tells me you fucked her with your eyes closed. She tells me you wake in the night crying for your mother, your mummy's boy. I could go on. Should we stop this? I'm not gonna do it either. But if someone did it, you know, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? What can you do? Can't what do it. Can what can what do? can you and me do? What can redo? Folks, welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan, and I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode thirty. Yeah. Last number before we get to the biggies, like I said uh, last week or a few weeks ago, we've had a bit of a break. We got a second of our great action film years going last week with uh, 1996, a big year. Yep. It was well received. By what? By who? I don't know. Well, no one told us. No one's making blanket no one, claims now? No one told us to take it down. We did not get any letters or registered mail from uh, Tom Berenger's representatives. So No, he's, he's, he likes the free press. Oh, yeah. I think so, too. I mean, he's not getting Charlie Sheen free press, so that's good for him. Corey Haim isn't rising from the grave. <laughs> oh, yeah. Corey, wait, Corey Haim is, is dead. Is dead, yeah. He died of pneumonia in 2010. Corey Feldman's still alive. Yeah. Now, Corey Feldman released that website in the documentary today saying that Charlie Sheen allegedly raped Corey Haim. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Allegedly. Charlie Sheen vehemently denies it. When did that happen? When did... When, like when, was that, when was I'm that allegedly gonna, supposed to have taken place? I'm not going to You didn't watch the it? Corey Feldman documentary about what, what is it like on a platform or is it just like on his um, own website? Or I, There was a website for it. Uh, I, you know what? I shouldn't be talking about No, no, about we should definitely... We should, I mean, I don't want to get 12 into it too much, but uh, that is the claim he's making huh. in his documentary. His pedophile ring documentary. Who knows? Well, Who that would be no on. good. For him, I would feel bad for him if that's true. For Charlie Sheen? No, for Corey Haim. Oh, yeah. I was like, I wouldn't feel... If it's true, I wouldn't feel bad for Charlie Sheen. No. Yeah, okay, good. As long as we're on the same page with that one. We're 100% on the same page. Okay, good. On lighter topics, this week is... Uh, well, this... this, this, this uh, we're not this week, but next week is... Uh, well, no, it's Saturday. I keep forgetting. Yeah. And then we record this on Tuesday for by next Tuesday it's going to be St. Patrick's yeah. Day. It is uh it is St. Patrick's Day week so we decided that we would uh, get a red ale. Are red ales particularly prevalent during St. Patrick's Day? You're the one who suggested a red ale. They always have Killians out everywhere. Oh, well, they have Killians and they have like the dry stouts from Guinness and yeah. Whatever Newcastle is. Harpoon does that. Oh, one. Harpoon Red. I should have got the Harpoon Red. We yeah, what is it called? Craig yeah, look at the Craig. Uh, but I am quasi-breaking farm table. You you can get here in 24 hours if you're really diligent. I drove uh, there in like 13. 
to Chicago. Yeah. It's from Chicago. It's Lagunitas. But keeping in theme, Chicago is famously known for, on St. Patrick's Day, dying uh, the river. I don't know the river in Chicago, what it's called. But dying the Chicago River. Is it the Chicago River? I don't know. Um, is it the it is the Chicago River? Sure, that's that's a pretty boring name for that river. (laughs) Uh, dying it green for St. Patrick's Day. Um, it looks like they're not gonna do that this year. Is that what I'm saying here? Well, did they cancel the parade yet? I mean, they're they're in New Haven, they're foregoing celebrations. Um, but they did cancel the parade in New Haven. The bars are still saying the parade day is on in terms of the actual part of the parade day. Like Trinity, I, I will still be nestled into Trinity on Sunday. Here's the thing. I, I have a feeling, What I guess the one good thing that could come from all of this happening is that like, you know, no more people die or whatever. But like a bunch of people that like they start are used to doing hands. stuff. No, no. Well, yeah, that would be awesome. But if they just, you know, there's no parade, they're just like, I didn't miss it. And then, you know, and that was, like, the same thing with, like, basketball. Apparently, they may play basketball games with, like, empty arenas. Yeah, they're doing that Italy with the soccer uh, games. They're playing in empty arenas. And then people just, like, don't go to them. And they're just, you know, afterwards, like, actually, I was fine. Actually, I really enjoyed my time not going to that thing. And then, then, like, society just collapses around us. Everything, all the institutions that we we knew and loved were just like, you know what? The corporate The corporate-owned institutions. And then the workers decide that they're going to take it over. They seize the means of production. And they give each other all some Jeff kind Bezos of... Jeff Bezos has put in the Central Park with the guillotine. The guillotine. Mm-hmm. I said guillotine. Apparently it's guillotine. Guillotine. I can't pronounce words. We're getting wildly off topic. <laughs> um, I don't advocate the murder of Jeff Bezos. I just say he's in Central Park where there's a guillotine there. He's just, just like, look at that guillotine. Yeah. Can I have my drones deliver that somewhere? Um, but it is the Loganitas. <laughs> Lucky 13. A Mondo Large Red Ale. Um, lucky 13. Look at that. 13. Lucky. You know, the St. Patrick's Day has some, some luck thing, I guess. Yep. Um, it is beer. Is whatever. Uh, we hope you enjoy this specially brewed high-gravity Auburn offering. First brewed in celebration of our first profitable business year in 2006. So it has nothing to do with yeah. uh, St. Patrick's Day. Now, it's called a Mondo Large Red Ale, Tom. Because this is 8.8%. Woo! Yeah. All right. Let's see, what, and let's see a, what happens there. We have a six-pack of this. We took a week a week off, so we are. We're catching up. Dwelling into the drinking. Dink it. I don't even know what that smells like. Um... It tastes like a Scottish ale with a little less sweetness. So I actually find this pleasant. Hmm. I typically um, want to like Scottish ales. There is a Scottish ale from Oscar Blues, I think. Oscar Blues. Um, Scotch ale, sorry. Scotch ale, not mm-hmm. Scottish ale. Um, Old Chub that mm. I really wanted to like. I really thought I was going to like it. Because it's a you know scotch has that, has that scotch sweetness, mm-hmm. but then I drank it and it was just too much sugar. And this reminds me of that. However, it does not have that really sweet syrupy finish. It's sweet on the front, yeah. And that kind of just finishes. I think that's kind of what I'm looking for is whatever that finishing note is going to be, and I'm not getting it. It just kind of 
dissipates. The yeah. flavor just kind of disappears. But like, let it sit in the front of your tongue. You get like a lot of sweet. Yeah. Actually, if you let it sit in the front of your tongue, you, it keeps the sweetness. The first, like the when it enters your mouth, it's you know, <laughs> it's pretty good. But then it just feels really empty, and you just kind of have that heavy, not heaviness, but that um, you could feel the eight percent. It feels like, like at, going to Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, like it was. It was a little empty. A little empty. Yeah. I mean. Not physically empty, but no, the not physically empty, but the experience of it is a little leaves you wanting. It was kind of like the Harrison Ford's eyes in his last like five films. Well, we realize that there's um, they've essentially the, built Tom. Tom did go to would, Florida to to visit Universal Studios, yeah. the Harry Potter cursed child expand of wizarding. That was actually world. really awesome. This was really, really well done. And every time you entered it, you're just like, "Holy shit!" No, I've heard, I've heard good things about Wizarding World. This is, <laughs> this is bananas. I've heard bad things about Galaxy's Edge. Star Wars Galaxy. So here's a deal. Galaxy's with Gal- Edge is that right? Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, the rides are amazing. The two rides are the unbelievable. Two. But there's only two. Is one of them Star Tours? No, Star Tours is still there, but it's not in Galaxy's Edge. It's just like right outside Galaxy's Edge. Oh, well, at least it's near. Um. Yeah, we don't. I mean, we don't need to go into it. But yeah, it was the rides are amazing. The experience is not really much of an experience. It's just like a buying stuff and walking really close to people all the time experience. So, um, but if you get a chance to go there, uh, make an appointment to build your own lightsaber because that shit is fucking cool. That was the best building your own lightsaber. But Wizarding World was was great. Wizarding World was great. Good experience. The rides are cool. There's you, four ride. There's did, five rides did total. You get a wand. We did get wands. Yeah. Was that experience fun? Um, it was okay. Yeah, it was not, not comparable to the lightsaber. No, no, it's not comparable. The lightsaber experience is like a religious experience, and I was almost in tears. What like, about what for was a happening? person who doesn't give a fuck about Star Wars like me, <sighs> except for Mandalorian, which I liked. Probably, probably not. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm never going to go because I hate Probably not. Around. And it's like 200 bucks to build a lightsaber. What? Yeah, it's, but it's like a heavy, it's a metal, it's made out of metal. It's awesome. It's very official. What's happened when you start, when you press the button? Is it like, is it, it, it lights like light? up? Does it have the light? Like yeah, it the goes, full glass thing? Yeah, and it makes sounds and Does it makes. It, if you break it, can you like impale people with it at least? No, well, it's made out of plastic, but it's like the <sighs> blade is made out of plastic, but it's like a heavy plastic. So if you shatter it, you could, you could still stick it through somebody's throat. Sure, yeah. Because I, I, what's the point of having a lightsaber unless you can actually slaughter people? Yeah, I suppose that's a, a good question, Mario. It's putting just, things in people's throats is a good question. I that's what I heard. I was just going. I was just going. Like you know. And speaking of of <laughs> that idea, throats being ruined. Um, we both, you know, this is us playing a little catch-up here. And this is March, so things are weird in the movie world. Things are getting canceled. And yeah, the only movies out this weekend are The Hunt and the, the Onward. Onward, Onward. No, Onward was last weekend. Onward was last weekend. What the hell's out this weekend? The, the Hunt, Hunt and... and... A Quiet Place Part 2? That... That's the 20th. That's the 20th, okay. Um, who knows? Bloodshot? Is that coming out? Yeah, what the hell is Bloodshot? It's uh, some comic book movie with Vin Diesel. Something that I still believe is also coming. It, it's really just the hunt. Never really, sometimes always, is starting to finally come out. But, but that's here. not going to come out here yet. We'll get that in May or something. Um, so the movie we're going to talk about is um, the remake of whatever yeah, year it was. Uh, the Invisible Man. I'm scared. 
He was a sociopath, completely in control of everything. He said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Are you okay? Someone sitting in that chair. I found something that can prove what I'm experiencing. You need help. Adrian is dead. I went to his house today. He's not dead. I have a pile of ashes in the box that would disagree with you. He has figured out a way to be invisible. Only thing more brilliant than inventing something that makes you invisible is coming up with the perfect way to torture you, even in death. C. Cass has been uh, living in a, a very abusive, torturous, emotionally and physical abusive relationship with a optics engineer and... Ex uh, He's a leader in his Extremely wealthy uh, Adrian Griffin. Um, one late night, she s finds her way out of his high tech house, bumping, bumping into some some dog, dog water bowls. While she does, uh, she escapes just by the skin of her teeth uh, as Adrian tries to grab her, and then uh, she goes to the house of. Um, Oh, it's Emily's ex-husband? That's what Wikipedia said, but all the reviews I've read true. said it's just, just like a friend. friend. Yeah, yeah, it's not the ex-husband. They just say friend, I thought. They're... I don't think it's the ex-husband. I don't remember that at all. But uh, I'm going to say Emily's friend, James, and her daughter, Sydney. She's off She's off the grid. She's in hiding, and she's suffering from severe anxiety and... Um, I don't want to say claustrophobia. What's it called when you're, uh, you can't go outside? Post-traumatic stress. Agoraphobia. Post agoraphobia. Um... Agoraphobia. Uh, one day, um, her sister comes to the house, uh, even though she's not supposed to, to inform her that Adrian has committed suicide. He has slashed his wrist, and he is dead. Dead as a doorknob, like Marley. Both Bob and the spirit Marley. Jacob from Christmas Carol. <laughs> um, <laughs> but not Jake. Not the other Marley. I think the other Marley's still alive. Uh... A few days later, she receives a letter from an attorney demanding her presence. That attorney is Tom Griffin, the brother of Adrian, who has awarded her a $4 million, $5 million estate. It's been two weeks since I saw this movie. Um, and unlike the other movie I saw that weekend, I did not see it three other times, <laughs> which I've now seen that movie four times. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. Um which will be given to her in $100,000 monthly increments over around about four years. That's where I got the floor from. Um, but then, as she stays at home and feels a little more comfortable with life, strange occurrences happen. Uh, food lights on fire and knives go disappearing and she thinks her blankets are taken off and she thinks she's getting her photo taken. And she slowly begins to believe that Adrian has not committed suicide but is in fact hiding around doing some optic illusion sort of craziness. He's a leader in the field. Because he's a leader in the field. Did, yeah, it's, he's, a, he's a leader in the field of optics. Yeah. Some Did might, you know that? Some might say a pioneer. Some might say. I do believe they call him a pioneer. In a the pioneer, field. a yeah. leader in the field in optics. Optics. Um, 
eventually she is she's attacked at home when she finds which is very strong evidence that there is a leader in the field of optics that is attacking her mm-hmm. um she even dumps paint on said leader of optics and that's right before she gets beat up by him yeah that's a cool shot uh with the paint yeah yeah that's cool uh, it's amazing that it washes off so quickly yeah well listen when you're a leader in the field of optics you create suits that are leaders in the field of cleaning too Right. It just, you can get them wet, it comes right off. Because you're a leader in the field of optics. Right. I mean, this isn't no fucking Hollow Man shit. Well, it's the thing. If you are a Lee leader Wa- in the field Lee of Lee Wannell is a little bit better than Paul Verhoeven when it comes to making sure water doesn't stick to you. Well, Paul Verhoeven had one goal in mind, which was to get Kevin Bacon messed up enough that he would... Show penis. <laughs> that show he... burned Kevin Bacon bacon. It was just his whole plan. Have you was... seen? Do you remember that that part in the movie where he's burned and like he's climbing up and just like you could see dong? Yeah, just Paul Verhoeven. That's it's just he was oh. just like yeah, doesn't matter. Okay, continue. I mean, it does matter. It's great. <laughs> All man fried was... Kevin Bacon dong is very important. Um, she goes to her sister who is uh she's been estranged from because you know this mysterious invisible man wrote an email from her uh account saying that she hates her and is suffocating and uh they go to a restaurant she should start explaining the situation to her when her sister sees a knife floating in the air and then she gets her throat slashed and then she bleeds and she's dead goodbye em- goodbye emily you died shouldn't have been been around elizabeth moss that's what, that's what happens when you're around elizabeth moss uh of course the entire staff of the swanky japanese whatever fusion weird restaurant arrest grab her and arrest her and she's taken off to prison uh, for the murder, um, where Tom says that the money's going to be taken away for committing a crime, but it also turns out that C is pregnant because she had been taking birth control with Adrian, but Adrian had found it out because he knew what he, she was thinking because he's a leader in optics. Yep. Both optics that we see and optics of the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like um, Tim Roth in Lie to Me. That Fox show that he was on for a while, where he could see what your just by reading your facial cues. In the other show, Blacklist. Yeah, could he do that? I don't know. I just wanted. I bet he could. I just wanted to mention James. I bet James Spader could do it. Or was that one guy on The Mentalist show? The Mentalist. That actor, I hated him. I don't know. I don't don't know know what his name is. But every time I see his face, I just don't like him. It's not a good reason. Um. Well, she, uh, you know, says she's given she's given a few days to decide, but she sneaks off and grabs the pen and tries to commit suicide, and she's stopped by this invisible man who she stabs, and she makes her escape. And while she's making her escape, a bunch of guards get murdered or just beat up. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what happens there. They always like a lot of reviews keep saying they get killed. It's a lot. But of... They specifically seems like they aren't killed. Some maybe one of. Or two of them are But the killed. guy gets shot in the back. I think he dies. But he shoots that one guy in the knee and just leaves, like, just punches him. I don't think that guy dies. Well, uh, I don't know. It's, we're going to get to that. Let's see. Okay, continue. Me. Let's get to the end of the synopsis and then we'll uh, tear it know, apart. She, she then gets, he says, I'm going to kill the people you love. Uh, after she escapes, then it's the water and the rain because mm-hmm. there was a big storm. Because I thought that was going to look good, but it wasn't anything. Um, she gets home. She shoots the invisible man to death. And it turns out that it was. Tom, the brother. Oh, and Adrian had committed suicide. It had been a setup all along. He was along. in a, his basement. He was in his yeah basement, kidnapped. tied up and unshaven. Yeah. Also, by the way, the ability was created by 
an optic suit. A suit full of lenses. Yeah. That do something. They they make optics. Because he's a pioneer in the field of optics. Yeah. Uh, she agrees to go home to Adrian because she believes that you know Adrian will is is was the Invisible Man all along, or that the two of them were working together. Um, and she wants to protect Sydney and James, and but she wants to catch Adrian admitting to it. Mm-hmm. Adrian refuses to admit to it, and so uh, that suit she had seen earlier when she sneaked into that snuck into the house, she had hid away, and she puts it on and forces Adrian to slit his own throat. Uh, even though nobody can see it, and then then Adrian then Adrian dies, and then then she walks away and she lives. The end. Yeah, but she has um, the Invisible Man suit. So if they want to make a dark universe thing, I guess Elizabeth Moss becomes the Invisible I, Man. I was saying, are they going to do this? And what's the angle? Like I mean, I think, she just like I think with the turns amount of money the... they done, this did, I think maybe they do, but I don't know what. I mean, but I does figure... it turn into a girl with a dragon tattoo type situation where she just avenges? wronged women or what would she do she just hangs out with russell crowe and tom cruise just is like i'm invisible and they're like what okay cool boo awesome yeah <laughs> awesome elizabeth moss good work well it's not her fault um i thought this was entertaining um it's it's a steep downgrade from upgrade uh-huh. i didn't mean to do that but that was a that's fun. Uh, which I, I was a movie I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever get to see that. I didn't see Upgrade, no. Um, it was the better Venom of the of the Venom year. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> also, I think Lee Wannell hates, hates tech bros. or en- I think he just hates engineers. Mm. Lee Wannell has a real hard-on for hating engineers. Because Jigsaw, you know, John Kramer, yeah. engineer. He's a douchebag. He's a bad guy. Yeah, um, that's interesting. The, uh, the Dane... Dehan looking motherfucker who wasn't Dane Dehan. He's not a motherfucker. He's actually pretty good in that movie. Is an engineer who created um, STEM. Uh, STEM, I think. Yeah. Um, in Upgrade, and he was a douchebag, and Adrian Griffin's a douchebag. Yeah. Sure is. You know, rich rich tech bros. He, he Lee Wannell's not a fan. Australia must have too many rich Some, tech yeah, bros. Something must have happened to him. Um, but beyond that, um, it's entertaining. I don't think it was this kind of like transcendent discussion on abuse that that some of the reviews have well, made it out to be. I think Elizabeth Moss really carries that kind of fear and weight on her shoulders well. I mean, it's not like a, a stunning. It's not like a her smell style of mental breakdown of a performance. No, no, no. Um, she's definitely playing to the type of film this is um but it's it's competent it's it's entertaining i think the effects work it's i i like for the first time that we're doing an invisible man thing with a suit mm-hmm. it's like less super less supernatural i guess than like on, kind of like the uh, injections were and on like on purpose like it's a it's a calculated yeah I, I choice like, to you know be invisible and when to be invisible when not to be invisible. yeah and and, and I, I wish i um you know as opposed to the, the previous variations where, you know, Adrian, like, Claude Rains, Adrian Griffin, or um, Kevin Bacon in Hollow Man, his, uh, his Sebastian Kane. I don't want to just say Adrian Griffin in that. They both kind of, like, descended into madness because of their invisibility or because of, like, the godlike qualities they could have got yeah. from their invisibility. Um, Adrian, I like the fact that Adrian 
is evil from the get-go, I would have maybe liked a little bit of um, ambiguity about whether Adrian was the Invisible Man. Well, I think there is some ambiguity about whether or not he The way he says surprise in the end made me feel like, wink, wink. Here's my thing. My take. I kind of I agree with you on most of those fronts. I was relatively entertained. I think it's pretty dumb. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely dumb. It's I think it's the third really good neck slashing gore effects on Adrian's death though. Yeah, I, I always like pretty I like good. A, I like a good neck slash. And I thought the, I, I think the the use the choice of like um, using lots and lots of practical effects first, even if they're not practical per se, but like small scale effects to kind of ramp up the tension. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, especially and not for going like right. seven million dollar. It's a seven million dollar movie. Right. So. It's for what it is a low budget Blumhouse horror feature. Um, it's pretty good. It features. Um, a, a, a good it'd be I'm gonna be very amused if this is like the Elizabeth Moss performance that like the Oscars decide to recognize with I mean, the nomination you never know maybe there's only two good or two worthy female performances this year who knows uh, she, she could definitely be something that like gets a SAG though like kind of like how Emily sure. Blunt got nominated for Quiet Place I could see this like randomly getting a SAG nomination I don't see this right if, if I mean this if year Lupita Nyong'o is not gonna get it fucking travesty for that to happen <sighs> It it is so far, Mario, from a, a contending movies year. It is so far. How so? I don't know. Like the movie, well, all the you... movies that are coming out are getting pushed back to like twenty thirty. Yeah. Um, at least for I mean, the movie that you saw that we're going to talk about next week is not eligible for anything this year. So yeah, well, um, I mean, that, that's gonna. I think that might definitively ruin the twenty twenty pivotal film awards. And if it doesn't, then this is going to be an amazing year. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's what I look forward to. Um, I think my. My problem with this movie is... That movie I'm talking about is Fantasy Island, by the way. You're the one person... Lucy Hale. Um, just everywhere. My problem with this movie, I suppose, is just from the... I don't know. The cultural impact of what it's supposed to mean. Because I don't think it's... I don't... I forget, and I was thinking about this when I was watching this movie. It's like, this reminds me of something that we've talked about on the show where I don't get a really clear sense of whether or not the filmmakers actually know what the hell they're talking about. So like when you say at the end of the movie that you wish there was a little ambiguity, I actually think there is some ambiguity. I think they leave the door open that she is, she is maybe not crazy. She's no, not, cause he's definitely, she's obviously not her. imagining he, it. He definitely, yeah, and she's not imagining it. He definitely abused her. Right. But, um, Aldous Hodge's face, like when she says, you know, what did you hear? Like, what, what did that sound like to you? His face, and then her kind of like, her face like afterwards. Weird twist of gaslighting her own self. Was, was yeah, like, and then the idea that she, you know, he said surprise, but, and then he said surprise on the text message. And, you know, it's like this thing that kind of links them together, but there's also... There's all they leave all these weird loose threads. Like, how did he get? How did he nail himself into the basement? And he would have had to have nailed himself into the basement because to get for Tom couldn't have gone all the way back to the house. So was he there for a couple of days? Did Tom take over as the thing? Did he have the suit on him when he was talking to him? And then like he went into a bathroom and like put the suit on. So it was all of Tom's lawyer stuff like in a bathroom at the 
like the secure treatment facility somewhere. Listen, we've all seen Spider-Man 2. I forgot that movie was called right now. Far From Home. Mm-hmm. He probably had some of that Mysterio technology to create an illusion. Well, I mean, that Because he's an optics. He was he's a, a pioneer. pioneer. Of he, was, he was a leader in the field of optics. So probably what happened was he had an illusion that he was boarded in. Right. But he really wasn't. So, I mean, I feel like we've talked about this on the show, too. Remember that episode of The X? Did you watch The X-Files? Yeah. Remember that episode where that guy, it was a guy that could always find your blind spot? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, that was, like, what his, his weird thing was. Like, he could, you never saw him because he could always find your blind spot. Like, is that what's happening here? How did he fake his own death? Like, why, how did he fake his own death? Like, that's, that's how does like, it, yeah. there's because like, and it's, there's definitive plot holes in this there, like, Things I'm able to forgive just to like advance the plot, right? But but like, there's clearly a there's there was a suicide. There would have been a police investigation. But, into well, said it was suicide. published in the news, so yeah. it could. It's not like Tom was like, "I saw him dead." Here's a picture. Well, that's what I'm saying. And so and people then go like, "Well, well, Tom said it." I don't think you could have a movie that doesn't take its plot so seriously and then ask you to to like take it seriously from a cultural perspective. I. I think that we should call out in our movies. You know, I'm not going to Armand White and Brett Easton Ellis are myself here. You should make all of these movies, make all the movies that you want, calling out toxic masculinity, calling out like um, the abuse of women, calling out how like the culture, you know, treats abused women and how they like, you know, how they they're not the. Uh, the the abusers are not the only one gaslighting these women. The culture is gaslighting these women too. Society is gaslighting these women. But if you're gonna do that, you know what I mean. If you're gonna if you're gonna do that, you can't make it so exploitative. I mean, this really just kind of exploited the idea of abused women to make a fun horror movie, don't you think? I mean, if you're gonna make a movie about abused women, like I don't know, there's women that I'm sure there are women that are in relationships with optics pioneers that live in modernist castles behind uh, thick concrete walls with cameras everywhere, with a, a fucking bat three, cave in their basement. Three-legged dogs. With, well, yeah. Dog. That dog was three-legged, right? No, it was just a regular dog. Why did I think of that dog was three-legged? But here's the thing. Three-legged, that that guy's so abusive. Did he? Wouldn't he be? That dog was nice. That was a nice dog. I mean, he did have the shot collar thing. You know, I guess the electric fence collar. But why does he need an electric fence? He has a fucking concrete border wall like well, surrounding why, his house. That's, that's how controlling he is. I, well, I guess you can't you can't go within an inch of the border. It just My, seems like it's not taking it's 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 yeah. asking us to take something seriously that the movie itself does not take seriously. There's a lot of smirking going on in this movie, and there's not a, any amount of Elizabeth Moss tremendousness or Aldous Hodge charisma that's going to make me just kind of feel okay with what they're. With what they're kind of putting out here, you yeah, know I think, what I mean. I think my biggest problem with it is is it it, it kind of dwells so heavily into those like deep thematic concerns, but you know, and it does like Elizabeth Moss does carry that. Sure, it does, you know, build into like elements where it focuses into her agoraphobia, and then maybe in the end where she's even showing like some of that same abusive behavior herself, mm-hmm. our manipulation, our control over James, um, but it's hamstrung by the fact that. If you're going to do that, you have to have careful execution of your screenplay as a whole, mm-hmm. and you can't leave these drastically like untied ends that are end up being confusing. Not this confusing or unclear from a storytelling standpoint, because then it feels as though you're mishandling 
the brain. The, the, you're fumbling the ball there. Like, how did he lock himself in? Um, you know, obviously, we could assume that there's two suits, that they're both, like, Adrian was probably went to the house or maybe, or Tom But that would there. mean that there's three suits because she's yeah, got she's a suit hidden. But is there, does that mean there's a fourth suit? Like, is this the whole family? It's just Adrian and Tom? But, but things like that, things like the suicide, like what what was the body they had that, that the police would be like, oh, that's that's Adrian. You know, th- these strings that just are unclear. You know, like they, they do a lot of attention in like leaving doors open to make it clear where like the invisible man can like get through, mm-hmm. you know, and whatnot. Like, you know, I'll talk about like focusing on that. Now, when you leave those kind of like major significant plot points, hit like, loose it undermines that kind of thematic thing you're trying to, that thematic right. drive you're trying to do if you're trying to make like a fun horror movie with a vein of abuse in it like she's an abused woman until mm-hmm. she's on edge you know maybe you want to keep it loose and fun maybe don't dwell so heavily into that abuse and try to make it make this like really deep thematic point and have your entire first act be drilling that point over and over and over again you know, like, for example, the engineering scene where she goes for the job interview, um, the architecture scene, yeah. just exists in that point to kind of, like, further drive that in. I mean, mm-hmm. it's used later to say, like, oh, her thing was stolen by Adrian. But it's there, really, to drive home just the, the amount of post-traumatic stress and anxiety she's yeah, had. Yeah, yeah, Or the entire pregnancy thread, which is used to advance the plot. But, you know, these are deep thematic things that are done, but they are undermined by, like, these loose ends. Well, because you don't even really get a good sense of what Tom's deal is. So did she... Did Tom not want to do any of the things that he's doing because that one speech that he gives to um, um, Cecile... Yeah, gives Cecilia about, like... Is, um... I don't know if I could press her name. About, like, how he was controlled him. Like, and, you know, his lip is quivering, stuff like that. And Michael Dorman, I think, did a really good job I think it was good. Yeah. So is he... Is Tom also a sociopath? Is that the point is it like the whole family sociopathic well, well, is he just there, manipulating her too i sat there thinking adrian was dead and the entire plot was going to be tom just got the tech found the suit and just wanted the money right which i thought which when i heard that i was like oh you know like the patterns of abuse and whatnot and then her killing tom like in the end would be her overcoming that and being like taking the and i would have been like you know what that's fine like that would i think would have been okay like had she unmasked the suit and just Tom and Adrian had actually been dead all along. Mm-hmm. And it had just turned out that Tom wanted the money. Yeah. yeah and they yeah. Had both shared like this, like, like Tom just like knew that he was second in line to get it. Like, I think that would have made a, that would have like addressed all these kind of like hanging threads and then still made a little more, like a decently poignant effect of a woman overcoming, you know, this, this pattern of abuse, this pattern of fear and this, this constantly hanging cloud. She knows Adrian's dead. You know, and, yeah. then, and then the next man who tries to like gaslight her and emotionally abuse her, and, and Tom, she kills. Yeah, there's yeah. just there's like um, there's like a, a, a real heavy emphasis on the idea of like the like the, the the plot twist, and they've just kind of they just they just wrote the twist without kind of having like without justifying whatever that twist is at any point throughout the movie. Yeah, because Tom's like fully on board with killing a little girl. Well, and so that's the other thing is that this movie is, at some point disintegrates into. I think it's hard to take seriously on that societal level when the movie disintegrates into an invisible guy killing everybody. 
So yes, he's controlling. Maybe. He maybe. Maybe. maybe he's controlling that fight scene in the hallway. Looks cool, but I could not tell who. But if it he was also killing people or it also gets ridiculous up. after a while. It's just like it's almost like a Ninja Turtles thing where they just keep sending foot soldiers yeah. two at a time. And am I like he like would break one per like shoot one person in the leg and just kind of like punch him and knock him out and then he would like toy with another guy and shoot him in the back and then later on he shoots that one guy in the shoulder and I guess just leaves him as a witness perhaps so that he can frame Tom I guess because he just walks by that guy but like are all optics pioneers also like active Navy SEALs was Adrian Griffin an op- op- a pioneer in optics he was well so I mean I mean I, I forgave that because I figured anybody who's decently athletic could deliver a pretty killing blow that's not going to be properly defended. Yeah, but they're not like... I mean, they can't see shit. Like, so they're not blocking. Like, he'll just punch where they're not blocking. I, I was like, that's fine. But they're, they're not... Which is fine. I guess it's but fine for... Point, it's fine for point, one guy. At some it's point, you think, a guard, for, you think a guard just go, bang, 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 bang. Right. <laughs> shoot right. Well, you would think... Or Elizabeth... Which, you have to admit, like, doing a Sometimes They Come Back Again, like, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, mm-hmm. um, that old 90s horror movie yeah, yeah. where, like, the guy, like, paints himself and hides in the wall, and it ends with the guy just shooting randomly into yeah. the wall until he shoots the guy and he collapses. Had a guard just randomly done that and, like, just, like, Invisible Man collapses, that would have been I kept thinking the whole ending. time, like, why doesn't Elizabeth Moth just, like, stabbing the air? Like, just run around in a circle and just go... I guess... I guess it couldn't have been, like, Adrian that attacks her because, like, that fucker gets stabbed a lot in this chest. Like, with the pen. Yeah, so it had to have been Tom that attacked her, which meant that Tom... Tom killed all those people. So Tom was apparently a Navy SEAL. Yeah, but... I don't get it. It's, it's and Again... Unless they're both there. I, well, I guess they could be saying they're both in the hallway. If you don't... Which I guess, I guess that could make the point, is maybe both... But both their suits got damaged, so they're both, like, flickering all the time? Because she stabbed the, the suit got damaged because she stabbed him in the chest a bunch of times with the pen. Yes. Would she could get hurt by like fucking glass going into his skin? Like with that, I don't know. That's the thing. I have no idea. And I shouldn't. I I if you're gonna if you want to, me to just be watch if you I'm want also me not to, sure a suit filled with cameras could really be penetrated by a pen. <laughs> exactly. Um, if you want me to just have fun. Watching a movie where two people get their throat slit, um, and then Elizabeth Moss stabs herself in the wrist with a fountain pen and like drags it around. Um, and you want me to, you know, enjoy watching an invisible guy beat up Aldous Hodge? Um, you can do that, but you aren't allowed to attach like this heavy cultural theme to it and then pay it no justice whatsoever. And they don't. And just doing it isn't enough. I- and maybe it is. Maybe I'm being like hyper naive, or maybe being hyper picky. Um, just doing it, just attaching it to like the Me Too movement, isn't doing that Me Too movement like any favors. You know what I mean? It's not pushing. It's not pushing the movement forward at all. You know what I mean? It's no. just exploiting it for a plot point. And I, I guess that's how I see it anyway. It seems more ex- exploitative than it seems relevant. Yeah, it kind of undermines. which is a bummer. No, because, like, you take that away, or you diminish it quite heavily and don't make it so heavy-handed, it just becomes, like, a fun action. Like, a fun, I don't want to call it horror, like, thriller, psycho- psychological thriller. It becomes, it's like a lot, just thriller. It just becomes a fun thriller, you know? Because, like, that scene where his, her sister gets her throat slit is, is awesome. Like, that's a great, like, horror scene. Well, so it's funny, because we're going to... just looks randomly, and, like, the yeah. knife floating, 
and like the cutting out the music and just like letting Elizabeth Moss act with her face mm-hmm. and just with the score. Um, We're going to talk about a movie. That, so I think so. The score actually, it's funny that you mentioned the score. I think this score stinks. Yeah, Benjamin Wallfish is never great in it. But. Well, there's no score. It's just every time the guy shows up, it's just like... And Benjamin Wallfish did Blade Runner 2049. Which was not... I don't think 2049 is great. It's okay. But he had, the, he had the air score to work off of. Like, he was, his goal was just kind yeah. of modernizing that original piece. So, I don't know. It was, it was okay. I like Elizabeth Moss. It's, her, it's number three... For me, in the trilogy of, like, Elizabeth Moss Goes Crazy, with, I think, Queen of Earth being number one, and then Her Smell, and then this. Do um, you think she'll be really crazy? I mean, and then she's supposed to be crazy in Shirley, right? But I don't think she's going to do, like, this. Like, the disinte- like the, the, the disintegration. In her disintegration trilogy, I think this is number three. I mean, I thought the entire point of Shirley is like her trying to like mentally destroy a couple to write like a novel. But you can mentally destroy a couple and be cool about it. That's true. Shirley Jackson probably seems pretty cool about it. Yeah, I think that's probably what's going to happen. Maybe she'll be crazy in French Dispatch. Maybe. I'm not looking forward to that movie at all. I mean, I'm interested. I'm interested to see what's going to happen there. I actually finally watched the James Bond trailer today, and I'm. It's another movie I'm not really looking forward to because it's just a James Bond movie. I was kind of hoping that they'd do something. Carrie Fukunaga would do something really interesting. It's like, no, he's just jumping off a bridge with a rope, and it's just a car that you can drive the, in a circle. And, watch that be the only action scene to me. And Rami Malek is still in it, so you know it can't, it can't be that good. Are you? Yeah. But- Something that the world is not enough did well that I really want to see another Bond movie do. But, like, do it earlier. Introduce a villain and play it up as the villain, and that guy fucking dies in, like, the first, like, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then we just get a new villain throughout the entire rest of the movie. Which one was The World Is Not Enough? World's Not Enough is the one with uh, Sophia Marcel, I think, was her name. The uh, It's a Pierce Brosnan's third outing mm-hmm. after Gold Knight Tomorrow Never Dies. But the main villain is that guy that can't feel pain because he got shot. So he has that pain receptor. Do you think he's the main villain? And she being the Bond girl. Oh, okay. With Denise fucking Richards also being the actual Bond girl in it, playing Christmas Jones. The so new, they could say, the I guess Christmas physicist. doesn't come once a year. <laughs> that's pretty good. Wait, um, is that but, the but one she that's... ends up being the, like, the main villain. Which one starts with the um, tank chase over uh, the glaciers? That's Goldeneye. Oh, that's Goldeneye? By glaciers, do you mean like the the Russian airspace thing? No, no. There's one where there's like a tank chase over like great swaths of ice. I mean, it's been forever since I've seen World Is Not Enough, but I don't think it was that. One. It wasn't that one. I do not remember. How many did he make? Uh, he made four. He looked good. Die Another Day, I think, was his last. Yeah, it was his maybe last it was one. maybe Die Another Day was it? Die Another Day does have is have an ice hotel as a major set point. <laughs> it does. That's a, that's a, that's an ice hotel. But no, that begins with him being like tortured in North Korea. Okay, so um, no, my my story with that is that my friends, my friend's dad died, and so we all went over to my other friend's house. Um, to like hang out and we all drank like white Russians because we were really into the Big Lebowski at the time and we drank way too many white Russians and I 
just threw Could it up. just been like a chase on ice? Like, it was a chase it the on ice, yeah. It just wasn't the beginning. Though. It was the very beginning. It was the first thing that happened. And that's all I saw. And then I threw up and passed out. Uh, I mean, that hap- there's a chase on ice in Die Another Day, but it's near the middle. Like near the end of the second. <laughs> maybe, it, maybe it was. Maybe I passed out first and then woke up and <laughs> threw up and then passed out again. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's a good that's a good way to end this segment. Yeah, yeah right. Um, Invisible Man is it's still fun. It's worth it's, it's just wait. You I mean, yeah, I don't know. Whatever. This is was don't, don't expect it to be like a transcendent discussion on. Well, I just the I read a four star review on RogerEbert.com and I was like four stars. Like it's fine. It's a solid like two and a half. It's two and a half with like a, a positive attitude. You know what I mean? It's like a positive two and a half. But it's also like it loses all those stars because it's just like a this is a bummer. It would have like, been much better if Elizabeth Moss had been replaced and had been like a reluctant bride to be on a like a Brittany Island who had to get her portrait painted. Mm. Would much better. Uh, we will be right back with mine number thirty. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, I was going to say my name is Tom Nolan again, um, but I suppose is it still? It is. It is. Oh. I didn't change it during during the break there. Um, From Missouri, Mississippi, I thought you were just going to go for broke and just change your opinion on everything. Well, I mean, Mississippi was already doing that. But. Um, no, there was a grieving process over the last the last week um, for my beloved Elizabeth Warren dropping out of the race. Um, but we're not going to talk about that now. Today we are going to talk about my number 30 flick. It is uh, Spike Jones' uh, 1999 movie, Being John Malkovich. My name is Craig Schwartz, and I have an interview with Dr. Lester. Please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. Which of these two letters comes first, this one or this one? The symbol on the left is not a letter, sir. Damn, you're good. Do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work? And 50 other lines to get into a girl's pants. (laughs) So, honey, you thought any more about us having a baby? I think that maybe we should just wait and see if this job thing pays off. There's a tiny door in my office, Maxine, and it takes you inside John Malkovich. There's no such thing as a hole into somebody's brain. Yes, there is. You see the world through John Malkovich's eyes? And then after about 15 minutes... That's not me. I didn't say that. You're spit out into a ditch on the side of the New Jersey turnpike. It was amazing. Where the hell are we? We're about to get you subconscious. Craig Schwartz is a puppeteer. He is down on his luck. He is married to Lottie, who uh, has an affinity for pets. She works at a pet store. She has monkeys and lizards and all sorts of things running all over the house. Um... He gets a job working for Lester Corp as a, which is a filing company. He's got because he got fast hands, and one day some files fall behind a, a a drawer, and he's a filing cabinet, and he he goes to get him, and he pulls the filing cabinet out, and he discovers a little door, and he a little door is like a dirt path with like a light at the end of it, and he crawls through the little door, and it ends up being a portal into the mind of the American actor John Malkovich. Um. Who was, who was in that, that heist movie? We're pretty sure it was in that, was in that heist movie, that jewel thief movie. Red? No, that's that's from the movie. Oh, okay. Um, Catherine Keener plays Maxine, who also works on floor seven and a half of this building. 
um, who Craig develops a very serious crush on. So did 13-year-old Falls Mario. in love with her. Um, so does Lottie. They both fall in love with her. Maxine convinces Craig to turn the Malkovich portal into a business, and but she uses it for her own ends. Lottie goes into it while her and Malkovich are having sex, and she develops a, a crush on Lottie, and Lottie develops feelings for Maxine, but they're feelings that are filtered through the lens of Malkovich's own mind, so she doesn't know if she wants to be a man or if she's just wants to be a lesbian or she doesn't know if she wants to have sexual reassignment. She's confused. It's all very confusing. There's also uh, Dr. Lester, played by Orson Bean, who, who we think is just a weirdo who thinks he can't talk because... Uh, Rest in peace. He just died. Yeah, he did. Because mm-hmm. Mary Kay places Flores is a is a He's linguist. A sad, sad death too. Orson Bean. Why? Got hit by a car, then got hit by another car. Where? L.A. In Venice. Yeah. At wow. ninety-one years old, made it to ninety-one. God, only damn get it. Hit by two cars. I saw that, but I didn't know that's how it happened. Oh yeah. my god. I mean, at least he was walking about, and like, so he's he's healthy. It's, he's gonna live on forever in movies like. I like Dorson Bean. He's good stuff. Um, he is not Mr. Lester. He is a much older person who has been moving from portal to portal in an attempt to live forever in a very ill-explained, but nobody gives a shit, uh, you know, system of, of vessel creation. And Malkovich is the next is the next vessel that he and several dozen of his octogenarian friends plan to inhabit um, as they near death. Um, Mario, there's a lot of things that can, we can talk about being John Malkovich, um, but I suppose from a pivotal film standpoint, we are talking about this because it is my introduction to the one and only... John Cusack. <laughs> no, I'd love... I like John Cusack a lot by then. Um, Charlie Kaufman. And not just, you know, how his brain worked and how his movies were going to function. We're going to talk about two more Charlie Kaufman movies here in my top 30. Um, they will be much later, so don't like don't, 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 don't wait break. for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, wait for them. Keep listening to episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But don't like sit there every day and be like, I hope this is the one. I hope this is the one because it's going to be a while. Um but Char- you know what Charlie Kaufman taught me? He taught me lots of things, Mario. He taught me about he taught me about that things that are weird in movies can have they don't have to have context, but they can feel real. So everything that's weird in this movie feels completely and totally and utterly real and earned and, and everything. Um, but he also taught me that you can really, really, really love being sad. In movies. And something is happening to my headphones or my mic. I'm only getting out. Oh, bep, bep. I was only getting sound through one of my ears and now I get it back and now I'm back on. <laughs> um, I, this is the first time I remember seeing a movie and understanding it to be completely and totally sad. Maybe sadder than I think the, the movie is, 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 is seen as now, is read as now. Um, and then totally getting off on how sad it made me. Like, just being thrilled to experience this kind of emotion in a movie. He, ha- he will make me, 
in the years that follow this much sadder and I will have much more significant um, experiences at movies than I did when I saw Being John Malkovich. Being John Malkovich is it's za- it's it's zany. It's like the zaniest Charlie Kaufman movie. Um, he would stop being so zany, and his his zany tendencies would be just l- leaden with so much sadness that it's it's stops being zany and just kind of um, becomes an expression of like the the only way that that sadness can come out. You know what I mean? It just that sadness has to come out in in um, you know. I don't know. I don't want to spoil anything coming forward, so I'm not going to say. Um, but that's that's. I mean, I, I you know I saw it in theaters. I think did you see it in theaters? No, 1999. So it was later, um, and I was completely enthralled. I saw by it like I was very much looking forward to this. I saw it like right as it came out, like the opening weekend. It came out on opening Tuesday. It came out on video. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a big. It was a big. Big deal. Um, I don't really. I don't. I don't. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I don't really know what to say. Like beyond that stuff, what did you think of it when you saw it? Were you so you were looking forward to it? Were you looking forward to it because it seemed so crazy? Oh no, I was looking forward to it because I was obsessed with John Malkovich at the time. Mm-hmm. Still am. Uh, having been, a f- as we've talked about uh, previously, um, having a deep love affair with uh, In the Line of Fire. And we do um, like if we talk about 1997 ever, uh, Con Air, and also really enjoying Dangerous Liaisons. So mm. an entire movie centered around the conceit of John Malkovich uh, enticed me. Um, and the entire idea of the the absurdity of a room seven and a half, floor mm-hmm. seven and a half, and that kind of like oddity was kind of a new introduction to kind of what i felt was like independent film like at this time yeah, yeah, i was yeah. 13 ish 13 so I, I really thought this was you know going to be the doorway to me getting movies you know like get an independent film feeling like i was going to be the smart one well, it's still the only movie and, that exists that's like this like there's not like people aren't remaking being john malkovich all the time no i mean there's puppeteering attempts in amelasia <laughs> Which is funny because he kind of goes, you know, you know, as he's directing it, it just kind of those scenes look a lot like the puppet scenes in 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 being John Malkovich. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. They're actually way less expressive somehow. Like they don't convey the same kind of sadness. They don't have the same depths um, that, like, you know, the dance. Um, well, I forget what he calls it. Um, oh, fuck! I just watched it. It was late. It doesn't matter. I, watch, like I his, watched it two weeks ago. That so. his dance does, you know what I mean? But it, it's, so for me, it's not a movie that profoundly stuck with me. Kaufman, as you can see from my list, is no, not somebody who ever really came close to me. Maybe because there, there's a deep sort of melancholy that, that yeah. spreads throughout. I mean, I mean, I think this could be called just being melancholy. It mm-hmm. just be just as quotable as a title. Um, that I don't connect with. I don't connect with this kind of... The director who around that, the age I would be, um, you know, when you were your, this age, when you saw this, would be 
Darren Aronofsky. Mm. And I think Darren Aronofsky has this bit of like weird hope in humanity, this this humanism to it. Yeah. So like even though he kinda like dwells into that melancholy and that sadness and the deprivation of people, it the turn is is more like a, a belief in man and a belief in something bigger and or conversely, you know, with like the Cohen's believing in kind of like the absolute absurdity of it all and kind of like making light of it and just doing with it. And so I just didn't I've never connected with Charlie Kaufman's kind of just like living in that. So I've always appreciated him from an artistic standpoint and from being able to so accurately convey that depth of emotion. Um, but it's it's similar to something like Don DeLillo. Mm. Like Don DeLillo and him seem strikingly similar with this sense of kind of like deep anew in, in the life you are in and kind of like this this kind of like stuck well, so stuckness so that's really and I just don't I, yeah. never con- I, I intellectually appreciate it but it doesn't connect with me the, the thing I took away from this was like a huge crush on Catherine Keener well yeah everyone did I mean the, the whole I think the whole world she got nominated for an Oscar for yeah. this um, I mean that's a really interesting point because I think one of the things that I really love about it and is that he doesn't shy away from that that kind of despair is something that you live with and that you're that sometimes you can fight against it and other most of the time though you're just trying to make it through the day knowing that this shit is just weighing on you like all the time Dundalil is really interesting I think in the sense that I think a lot of his books um there isn't you're right. There isn't that hope in Don DeLillo books. No one's really actively trying to reshape the universe that they live in. They're, the universe, the world around them is happening, and they are just kind of commenting on it. They are living within it, and they are they are just kind of telling you how they feel while living. I mean, it. Cosmopolis is just like the pinnacle of that. Even though you're, you know, he's an extremely wealthy individual, he's he's still tied to the happenstance of chance well i mean it's it's funny because uh, you know you could say white noise is probably even like a better pinnacle of that where stuff like you know the i just didn't want to go so easy or you could say if you don't want to go so easy you can go mount two is also in or great jones street is is an early delillo but it's a perfect example of that stuff where that guy is just in that apartment and he's just you're just there you know what i mean or even something like running dog where these forces. Tom, Tom has read much more Don DeLillo than I have. Yeah, it was a big Don DeLillo. <laughs> These forces exist outside of your understanding, and rather than trying to like usurp those forces or to to grapple with those forces and try to try to wrestle them to the ground and, and move beyond those forces, all you want to do is know what the forces are so you can see them coming. Mm. You can't defeat them. You just want to know what they are. So that the next, when you confront them, you're just like, that, I know what that is. And, and Charlie can... Kaufman is, is, it's, he, it's sadder than that for him. So like, for being John Malkovich, he, they talk is a it, lot about, yeah. I think it's more about like finding, some of Charlie Kaufman reminds, like strikes me as finding your lane. No, it's, it's, it's. Like, maybe not like the two, so the one movie we'll talk about yeah. way later. Um, so here's what I'll say about that, is that. I think a lot of this movie... So John Cusack's character talks a lot about the idea about puppeteering being like feeling 
feeling what someone else is feeling. You know what I mean? You feel what your character is feeling. And then when they he finds the Malkovich portal, he even talks about like the idea of like what is the self? Are we ourselves? You know, do I have a portal into my head somewhere? Blah blah blah. Um, but also just kind of the idea of experiencing life through somebody else's eyes. But if you watch the movie, it's actually not about any of those things because Craig, because Craig Juarez as <laughs> as Flores brilliantly calls him once um because schwartz doesn't actually want that he wants mal he wants to be himself while living malkovich's life and he's found a miracle and it's the literally the only way that he can do the thing he wants to do which is to he wants to continue being himself but to be himself in another context. But the only reason he is in the position that he's in is because he is himself. He as a self cannot be, cannot live another life. You know what I mean? And it's, it's that kind of, you know, it's that butting up against that kind of force and the results of that, of his, of his actions are what makes this movie so sad and so beautiful. You know what I mean? Like, by the end of the movie, he's just locked in that little girl's head. Um, you know, Malkovich's, Malkovich's daughter, or Lottie and, and Maxine's daughter, but Lottie was inside Malkovich when he got her pregnant, so it's both their daughters and all that other stuff. He's, he's tried to have this thing, but he doesn't really understand what he's looking for. So it's not just staying in, he's there, he's living with this kind of, this depression, but he doesn't understand that it's not, it's never going to be fixed. It just is forever. You know what I mean? And that's, well, he's, I mean, literally he's forever. Right. Because well, that's the thing, but he's Malkovich and the person we talked about earlier, kind of jumping into that brain yeah. and jumping, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's stuck along for the ride for that ever yeah or until the extinction of humanity or that doorway gets destroyed well because that again that girl will eventually walk into somebody else and he'll always be there but he'll always be part of that right but but unable to do anything and that's one of the things that i think the the movies we're going to talk about later they kind of they speak to that exact idea that like there's no there's not necessarily a way out of this and closure and happiness and acceptance only come when you realize that there's no way out. So that's why, I mean, the movie I'm kind of referring to, which is going to be a long way off from now, the reason the, the reason I think the ending is so beautiful is because he realizes that there's no, there's no way to get out of this. And that in and of itself is a kind of happiness. It's not the happiness he was looking for his whole life. It's not the happiness that Craig is looking for in, like, through Malkovich, but it's, it's a kind of happiness. And Craig will never know a kind of happiness. You know what I mean? Um, it's one of the reasons why I think adaptation is, like, a less good version than this. Because, you know, he understands, Charlie in that movie will understand a modicum of happiness. You know what I mean? And it came at a great cost. But once the cost, once the price has been paid, he can be happy. Um, and he can be satisfied. Um, and that's just not here. That's not in this movie. 
And I fucking loved that shit, man. I ate that up when I was 17 years old, 18 years old. That was the fucking best. Just like confronting a film that was so full of these emotions that like no other art that you, I had confronted up until that point. Maybe like the maybe like Francisco de Goya's like black paintings and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Where it's just like you know, something's eating my head and I'm going to just paint it all over these walls in this house. So is it more an appreciation of the art or kind of like more of a speaking to the things you, you felt and, and couldn't express necessarily? Well, that's the right? thing. I don't think it's... It was so new at the time. Now it just seems like commonplace and it seems like something that I understand implicitly in myself. But at the time, I definitely didn't because I was a teenager. You know what I mean? And everything was going pretty good. You know what I mean? I was in, I was in band. I was in a band. I had a girlfriend. I had drove a fucking Geo Metro. I had a boombox with that took like eight D batteries in the back seat, and my life was awesome. You know what I mean? It was an awesome life. But I think I recognize in this that there were was. You, were you student body president? No, I was. But I did um, help a guy who was running for student body president uh, for his uh, his speech. He did an interpretive dance, so I was the guy that had to press play on his boombox, which didn't work. So he did an interpretive dance to nothing. Did he win? He did not. I did. But I was there for it. I did a MasterCard ad joke. Yeah. I won by 700 votes. What? Out of a 1,200-person student body. Yeah, that's the... (laughs) <laughs> That's the ratio that, that was, Joe that Joe yeah. Biden is winning in Michigan right now. He, yeah, he won Michigan. Um, if, if you ever talk about peaking in high school, this guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't. Wait, wait, you can't say that. No, I'm gonna do a joke. You I'm can't say agree that. with you uh, about your okay. But no, no so, I, so, I think so it didn't. Did it, so it didn't respond to something you were feeling, or was that something like? No, I don't think so. But it was it was something I was aware of. It was a did, feeling did that it give a language. So did it give a language to something you weren't aware of, but kind of wanted to have? I would have a little more of an empathetic feeling of that was world. A, maybe, but it was. I think language is an interesting word to say. I think it was just a new language. You know what I mean? It was a new way to say some things. It was a new way to feel some things. You know what I mean? Or it was a new definition for some things that like maybe that I wasn't feeling outwardly but that i maybe kind of understood a little bit it's hard to say at this point you know what i mean it's hard to say this far out but i definitely um i definitely understood it definitely spoke specifically not specifically to like my personality or my my autobiography but it it felt like necessary you know what i mean at the time it was the right movie at the right time that would push me into um like a deeper understanding of, of other feelings later. You know what I mean? I definitely connected with it more specifically later in life. You know, like mm. in my 20s. So, how yeah. it's, so, wait, when you came back to it, did, how did your oh, I feelings on it change, though? It's, no, it's kind of the same. It's, 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 uh, so but that, no, now I understand kind of it, connected more with those feelings. Like, did it change? Well, yeah, the because you saw it, I think or? one of the, one of the great things about doing this thing is that, like, you can, it, the the deeper you connect to something, you can connect in different ways. You can kind of pull different things out of it, and you can read the movies differently. We've talked about this stuff before. The nuance, yeah. right? So, like, 
I don't think Charlie Kaufman was necessarily... So I think he was writing a bunch of stuff down, and I think he gave a bunch of dialogue to John Cusack that was supposed to mean something. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff about, like, self-definition in here. You know what I mean? Like, Maxine is really struggling. And Maxine doesn't seem like she's really struggling with anything except for, like, her affair with Lottie, like how she feels about Lottie. But really, her feelings about Lottie are tied to a self-definition. Is she a kind of power-hungry alpha, which is she, you know, outwardly portrays? Or is she this, or is she something else? You know what I mean? Is she someone that, like, not wants to be controlled, but wants to be part of this very specific relationship? You know what I mean? That a te- it's, it's, it's like an idea of a team versus, like, a control aspect. Right. Which I think, that's kind of an interesting thing, too. Like, there's a, there's a certain nuance to, like, gender discussion in this film that's... That's surprising from a, a, a male writer. Right. Well, in the, at least for, for, for the time, for uh, 1999. And especially like, to look at it now, the way that Lottie kind of struggles with what it means, because she's not struggling with like her gender, and she's not, she's not struggling with her gender in terms of like the culture. She's struggling with the gender in terms of her feelings. Yeah. And that's way... The culture doesn't really play a role in it. Absolutely it not, no. And, that's, and I think from a now standpoint, like, you know, to take it back to Invisible Man a little bit like that, if this movie came out now, that would be a big fucking deal. The fact that she's... The culture is completely removed from it. John Malkovich's attachment to the culture is central to why it's funny, but it's not central to the movie necessarily. Um, so all we have... In terms of Lottie and her and her questions about herself, or how she feels. Well, it's it's an interesting thing. Like a twenty-one-year-old film is, is dealing with questions with more nuance that are still, you know, even more so than the Me Too movement. I think are still more, uh, you know, divisive mm. in the current climate. I think it deals with it in much more nuance than than that. Yeah, it's it's. Um... It was interesting. I noticed that also. I noticed that also. That it was kind of saying all those things. I don't know. It's a good one. And it's, but it's, e- I mean, it's easy. Everyone's seen Being John Malkovich and everyone's kind of like, oh yeah, I like that movie. I don't know anyone that's like, fuck Being John Malkovich. Um, and I just, I want to give I a sh- think, I don't think there's many Charlie Kaufman films, maybe Confessions of a Dangerous Mind that people like. And he has hate. disowned that. So I just want to give a special it's shout funny, out. funny because I actually like Confessions of a yeah. Dangerous Mind a lot. I want to give a special shout out to, um, John Malkovich, um, because I think the key moment in this movie is when he goes into his own head, <laughs> and it's just his response to everything is one of the classic lines of in, in movie history. I think, you know what I mean? Just like when he's looking around, and he's got that face on, he's got the "I Love New York" hat and his zipped-up members-only jacket, and he's just Malkovich. Um, it's it's perfect. It, it's and I've been thinking a lot about this with my writing recently. Like, how do I know that something's perfect? You know what I mean? I like submit stuff and I'll to, like for class and I'll get good feedback on it and, and I'll look at it and I'll be like, but it's not like, how do I know that it's perfect? How do I know that this is the exact thing that I want to say? And I'll read people's books and I'll be like, how do they know that this is perfect? Like, I'm sure there's a million different ways they could have said this. I'm sure there's a million different versions of this paragraph or this sentence or whatever. How do they know that this is perfect? That response is perfect. It's perfect. There was nothing else that needed to be said there. It, he acted it perfectly. He did everything perfectly. It's really weird to just kind of confront, like, a perfect choice in acting. You know what I mean? And, like, the pitch of the voice is perfect. The length of, like, of, of the line is perfect. Everything is perfect. Just great. I love it. 
it's kind of actually really like thrilling to watch. Spike Jones seems to have the ability to kind of capture yeah like quick moments and of like perfection. Another thing that's kind of perfect in this is the Carter Burwell the theme, like the piano theme that kind of runs through it is so like weirdly like old and and and, and new and it's just it's great. It's the just appreciation great. I've been growing for Carter Burwell has we been doing this podcast and kind of like revisiting him is his ability to be nuanced. Mm. I really appreciate that. He gets nominated a lot, but kind of like people go like, mm, Carter Burwell score. But it's because his scores are just there. And they're there to like provide RNA to a film. And the fact that he's there to kind of like support the director's intent. Mm. It's it's not a, it's not like a Hans Zimmer score, which is kind of like always a Hans Zimmer score. Uh-huh. It's not a John Williams score, which is always kind of a John Williams score. Not, not to discredit either of those, like they just have their their motifs and, yeah. and the sounds that they create, and when you seek them out, you're looking for their brand. I think Carter Burwell's different in the sense that he like has this journeyman aspect to him, and really supporting a film's underlying intent. Well, it's interesting that the journeyman idea is interesting because he's he's worked on a ton of things, and not everything is like great. Not to say that it's bad, but sometimes it's just you know it works. But sometimes he gets a melody, and you're just like, "Holy shit!" Like that makes it like the of this is perfect. It's the perfect mix of just sad, but it has like a weird mystic kind of quality, like a weird otherworldly quality to it as well. It's it's very suggestive of lots of different emotions. Well, and I I keep looking back at the score I didn't like initially, which is the three bow boards outside Ebbing, Missouri score. Uh But like. Going back to that, it so fits the tone and the emotive, like the emotional sense of that film. Well, we're gonna I, have to. I mean, I think that's a great movie. I think it's a very under. No, I, I think I think it's a good movie too. Um, I I think figure we'll talk about it once we get up to, yeah, my my movies, the next movie I talk about from. Well, I think we have to do that as if unless he releases his other movie this year, which I don't think he. I don't will, think he will, but. but until we get to number one, and we're going to do this with Paul Thomas Anderson as well, like, if there's only one movie left that, like, we haven't discussed of a director, I think we have to do, like, a special episode of that, whatever yeah, that movie is. Well, we is. talked about how we're going to do, like, just looking at some of these movies will just be single episode sort of things, yeah. so we can drag this shit out for a That's true, movie. yeah. Um, but, no, I, I've noticed that just, like, with this score and just, like, the scores I've kind of, like come back to with Carter Burwell that he just he always he's the guy who's like he feels like he's he sees what the director wants to do and he doesn't have this need to put his signature on it mm-hmm. I mean there's there's a heavy piano to all of it but um, yeah you know he he just does what's needed to be done which is which I appreciate um yeah I 100% agree um I don't know Anything else to say about? I do not about becoming, being, remaining, forever existing, as Mister Malkovich of the John. How do you feel? How do you think John Malkovich feels about this movie? Like many years later, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to. I, that's the, he's he's the type of actor who I don't want to make any presumption about how he feels about anything. He was in those red movies, and I think he was gleeful about such. But do you think he is kind of defined by this movie now? Don't you think? 
I guess that is. I mean, he's like, made a lot of shit since this movie came out. Like Red and Red Two. Is he in Red or is he just in Red Two? Can't remember. I don't know. He was in one of the Reds. Um, um, well, you know what I mean. But and he didn't get like widely recognized for this. I mean, I think he didn't get nominated for an Oscar. I don't know if he got like SAG or I'm assuming he got a Golden Globe for it, award for, or nomination for it. Did he? For whatever that matters. I don't even know if he did because I think he's considered such like a non-essential, consequential part of this film that I wouldn't. I wouldn't think he he didn't. That's oh, so weird. He was not. I'm Cameron like, Diaz was. Yeah. This is this is a it's unlike Gangs of New York is a good Cameron Diaz. Yeah, it's fine. Um, I don't. He got an American Comedy Award nomination. He got that going for him. Uh, some film circles. He looks like he just did not do a whole lot that year um, hmm. in terms of making an impact. It's surprising. It's so like it's so surprising to look back on this movie now that I realize it only got like I just didn't even get a, a Screen Actors Guild Award. That's I just didn't get any Screen Actors Guild Award nominations. Fascinating, fascinating. Poor John Cusack also is really good in this. John Cusack's good, but I think he's just kind of like he's still playing the straight man in this, and he's kind of the vessel for the the story. The vessel. All right. Yeah, we'll be right back with Mario's uh, number thirty. Welcome back. I never say welcome back like you do. Welcome back. Yeah, and I don't think I ever do that. I think I just dwell right into my like, story Why would telling. you? I don't know. That's what I do. I, I don't give a shit about our listeners. <laughs> I just use this as a platform to pontificate. Yeah, that's what, that's what it's here for. Well, no, I think... I why, think does any, why else does anyone have a podcast? I think you somewhat care about like make, keeping this engaging, and I'm just like, I like to hang out with my friend. I'm going to be honest drink. with you. Well, that's... That's all. I, when Cage people get nachos, when people ask me why I do it, I'm just like because it's just an excuse to hang out with Mario every week. Um, but I just think about this <laughs> stuff. One, uh, we have one listener who's deeply into this. It's like, oh, oh, damn it! If if you are, we'd probably hang out with you too. Yeah, but we'd yeah. probably be doing this anyway. We would be you, having you can convers- enjoy nachos. Here's with the us. thing: we have we have had conversations about your number thirty a bunch of times in a bunch of different contexts. At a bunch of different levels of intoxication over various, you know, Never zero kinds of food. intoxication. Right, exactly. So this is not new or interesting for us. This is just kind of old hat, but we're, it's, it's like a, it's we're like a framing near, it. It's now. like a near nuance. That's, like, a, that's like the a, thing. We're going like, to frame it now. I don't, think I, I don't think I've ever framed it this way. Right. Um, speaking of which, there is this period of years that spans from... We talked about this last, you know, what Dr. Strangelove was two weeks ago, you know, from films I saw around 2003 through, I think, like, 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. That kind of shaped the framing of growth from adolescence to adulthood. Um, and some of these films kind of had these individual moments, these individual sparks. Dr. Strangelove was a really good example Children Man, a less good example. I have a intellectual appreciation of Children Man, but I have this really deep kind of like emotional connection with Doctor Strangelove in terms of shaping who I would become, mm-hmm. and, and 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 you know, I have this I have this real belief that that film and art 
can mature a person. And I think that's a, maybe a pretty commonly held belief, I, I, sure. I assume. Yeah, yeah. Like this, this nuance and idea of, of seeing things from different perspectives. Well, Sometimes just... you, you enter it, you enter uh, an idea expecting one thing and, and demanding one thing and you latch on to things that kind of, you know, kind of attach that self to that dogma. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And then we're going to talk about that next week or in a couple of weeks with me for sure. But then as, as you age and as you kind of want to get that fix again, as you want to get that fix of getting that dogma supported, if you're not a Republican, you start, <laughs> you know, seeing things that you feel are going to attach to that dogma, but start to kind of like, drive wedges into that sculpture that you've created that is your identity. And my number 30 is is the first piece of this weird four-film quadrilogy puzzle hmm. of this growth and development. And I do so many. I do, like, weird hand signals when I do you this You do what thing. you got to do. If we ever did a YouTube thing, people are like, what the fuck is this asshole doing? Because if we were having this conversation in a different context, you'd be eating a nacho while you're doing no. it. you got to do something with your hands. <laughs> but this weird sort of like bridge from the way I thought things worked with relationships and the way I thought love and romance was to this last point and by the fourth film where I realized I was being an asshole and I didn't know goddamn fucking thing. Mm. And since then, like, things have kind of, like, dwelled in and punched me in the chest. The film we're going to talk about next week on our special episode is 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 the next kind of, I think, maybe, like, the fifth film. Or maybe the sixth film. Maybe Call Me By Your Name would have been, like, the fifth film that kind of, like, doesn't intellectually well, Call Me By Your it. Name is like, wormed itself into your existence. Well, yeah, because, like, as I keep coming back to it, it's, it's kind of, like, having a more nuance. But, like, next week is kind of, like, I think majorly another film that attaches itself to that to this, Would, this is this next theme. week making your list no no uh, I think but it just it's you know it I mean, just it should but I, I feel like i feel like i'm at a point now where it's it's too far up to where i can't no no, no but like when, when we're in. done and we're like re when we're reevaluating stuff is creeping in somewhere portrait of on fire would be would be possibly top 10 oh that's a, i don't think you could say that Possible. I don't know. Top. 20, I think you have to top read 30, top forty. I was gonna say I have to. I didn't see some. I just see so many other movies. I, I say I, it would be. It would. Professional would you know find itself comfortably off its list. Off well, its that's. List. I mean, that's kind of how I feel about that. That was how I. Felt I don't know about where it ended. My life. Well, I think comparing it to like, I think comparing it to the, like like as I've done this list, I've obviously seen things and been like. This would this needs to be higher. Like I think Doctor Strange should have been higher. I think Children of Men should have been lower. Hmm. You know, Phantom Thread's last ten minutes maybe suggested it should have been lower, but the entire thing leading up the entire thing leading up to it suggests that it shouldn't be. Um, But this film was kind of my introduction to this 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 growth and this growth ebbs and drops and flows and eventually leads me to a point where the last movie of the four is I think actually the strongest mm. in terms of being divisive from my from being such a juxtaposition, sorry, from what I think. Um, but this was this was the introduction, as it were, to to looking for a more grounded 
exposition of, of what I felt love should be. And maybe it's not realistic and maybe it's, it's, it's very theatrical and very structured has, you know, Robert Ebert, Roger Ebert said in his review that he, films weren't as structured and nuanced of and, this. Yeah. He said in his yeah. review, like it was kind of like a, a re uh, coming back to people talking in ways that aren't normal. Hmm. Like that there's too much thought put into like the language, but I, he liked that. Um, and that's why that's why I attached myself to this. I was like, this language, the way they're talking to each other doesn't make any fucking sense from like a normal, everyday discussion. But I stuck to it, and I fell in love with it. And rewatching it, I I, I found new things, to, and, and like coming back to it when I watched it you know, again yesterday, I found new perspectives. I even texted you about like, oh, yeah, I yeah. used to think like I was connected here, but now I'm I'm not connected so much to the, this person. Opinion, like this character, but I'm connected to the performance yep. and how it reflects kind of that kind of personality. Um, but this is kind of the introduction to like the 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 the, the thing that shaped you talk about, you know, being John. I think this is really appropriate films being mm. John Malkovich shaping kind of like that doorway to you to kind of like a new like a new view. And this was the kind of a doorway to like how I shaped my view of what I thought love would be. And that is uh, 2004's Mike Nichols, Closer. And so it is Just like you said I saw this face, this vision. You were perfect. Life goes easy on me It was the moment of my life. I can't take my eyes off of you You came to, you said Hello, stranger. What a floozy. I can't take my eyes <laughs> off you. I love you. I love I everything about you. My eyes off you. You're wonderful. Don't ever forget it. Good. I always forget that the Blowyard's daughter is, like, made by this movie. Yeah, I mean... Like, I used to hear the that The only song. reason why anyone knows who Damien Rice is at all is because of this movie. Because I can't take off you. On a London sidewalk, obituary writer Dan Wolf sees a beautiful young woman with red hair walking towards him. He's enticed by her. He keeps looking at her. Eventually, she looks the wrong way as she's crossing a sidewalk and gets nailed by a car. <laughs> Not as badly as Brad Pitt. And meet Joe Black. Not as badly as Orson Bean. Right. It's a dark joke. <laughs> Come on, Mario. I'm gonna keep that. Let's keep that one in. Okay, I'll keep it in. I now. think Orson Bean would have would have found humor. Sure. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. In that, ninety one years walking, he's good. It just sucks. It's, it sucks. It sucks. sucks. No, it's it's death. Death has to be kept humorous. Um, she's okay. She scrapes her leg. He takes her to the doctor. Oh. They're waiting in the long line because the National Health Service is so terrible. It's terrible. God forbid we get public health care for everybody. That's what she, happens. She needs those two stitches just to wait. She should have got three. Lady. She should have got three. Should have got three. But the government's so cheap. Right. You know, if Anthem had been on the case, she probably would have got four stitches. Do you think that's what this and movie is about? Seventy-eight thousand dollar bill. Do you think this movie is about? That? Most likely. Um, you know, they 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 walk and dance afterwards and. Dan asks her name. She says she's Alice from New York. And they, they flirt. Um, he says he's writing a book. You know, they go through this this little patch of thing. Of this, this 
basically this monument to people who have sacrificed their lives for others mm-hmm. um, where he tells her that you know he was here years before with his father after his mother died you know uh, he, he wants to write a book he hasn't started writing a book yet mm-hmm. but a year later um, Dan has written a book that's based on Alice's life they've been now dating he also broke up with his girlfriend at this time he was dating somebody but he's broken up and this is a good little mark about Dan level of commitment to people yeah. um, while well, he goes to get his cover photo shot what's that called the uh, jacket photo yeah the author photo yeah the author photo for the book uh, he meets Anna Cameron American photographer who's in the process of uh, getting a divorce herself um, Dan falls for her instantaneously because this is the early 2000s and people said that Julia Roberts had this power on people and if you listen to any Indocile songs you would know that's not true she he just he just is if in people love wonder with her. what Indocile is it was my comedy rock band from college and one of our <laughs> songs is Julia Julia which was me bitching about Ellen Burstyn losing to her for Rockovich. We'll have Um, lots of opportunities to talk about that coming up on this podcast. Yeah, none of... I mean, we should talk Aaron Brock... Aaron Brockovich is not on our list. No, it is not. And I like Steven Soderbergh. Um, They they, they share a weird sort of kiss, and, you know, he goes downstairs, and Alice wants to come upstairs to, you know, use the restroom. She does. Dan says he needs to see see Anna. Um, Alice comes out and asks for a photo to be taken, and Alice reveals that... To Anna, after Dan's kind of like been told to, to leave, that she heard the entire conversation, she gets a photo of herself crying. Um, a few months later, Larry, the d- dermatologist, played by Shoot 'em Up star. That's it. Yeah, Shoot 'em Up <laughs> is why I remember him from. And last week's Children of Men, Clive Owen. We get a double Clive Owen feature on the Pivotal know, Film list. He is not in. That Sam Peckinpah Western for next for next list episode. Spoilers. Um, yeah, though he would be good at it. You know what? I'm, I'm going to put a spoiler every week now for my next film, just so if people want to watch it before next episode, they can be follow along. Oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. That's fun. Yeah, that, that's a new thing I'm going to do. My next week stars Emil Hirsch. Spoiler. <laughs> I think people think people are auto, would automatically know what that is. No, the girl next door. <laughs> they may think it's. <laughs> Dog ta- the dog boys of next week is, boys of Dogtown or whatever that. No, I think I think they would one hundred percent know that. I, I could only yeah no don't gonna know that. Uh, but Larry he's, he's on an online sex chat and talking in two thousand and four text yeah. type. The only thing of this movie that doesn't really super hold up for the time because nobody writes what like that anymore. Nobody writes W O T. Maybe they do in England. Maybe I'm showing my Zeno ism. Uh, there, um, I think he's talking to Anna, and they meet up for a sex arrangement. You nobody know, would the, assume he's that, the Sultan of Twat. Yeah, nobody would assume that um, that is real. And no. then if you're just like, let's meet up, and they'd be like, yeah, let's meet up. I mean, it's like I mean, they really might be going to happen. They might be into it, like just pretend to have the fantasy of it, right? Because you know, those early two thousand sex chats were all about that. They would wank one off and then they would be done with it but they definitely would not meet up with that person but he thinks he's talking to Anna but he's secretly talking to Dan as he's drinking a beer and smoking cigarettes just being sad just being shitty Jude Law um, well, I'm liking this movie but 
<laughs> Dan's a real piece of shit in this movie. Uh, and, um, you know, he convinces Larry to meet him at the aquarium because that's where Anna earlier had told him that he she liked to go to think. Mm-hmm. And Larry goes and Anna just so happens to be there. And, <gasps> you know, he starts talking about being the Sultan of Twilight. I got the white coat for you. I got the white coat and a really awkward situation leads itself to Clive Owen, you know, discussing his charms and him and Anna kind of get together and uh, they, they form a, a relationship. Yeah. A few months later, all four of them meet up at Anna's photography exhibit mm-hmm. uh, to see Alice's photo kind of like in the Prime Center. Dan and Larry and Alice share a moment where, you know, you see the reason why those two were nominated for the Oscar. Yeah. I just love the, yes, no, yes, fuck it, yes, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Clive Owen, just like, mid-2000s Clive Owen was just like this supreme charismatic, be- like, you could see why they were really thought about putting him in the Bond, just because, like, there was so much. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad a... they went with Craig, because I think Clive Owen would have just been a little too too rough for That doesn't him. make any sense, but it would have been awesome. Yeah, it wouldn't have, yeah. Like, they, and then, and Larry thinks about kissing Alice because there's a, a certain weird sort of physical chemistry there, but he, he holds back. Meanwhile, Dan is obsessed with Anna and telling him, telling her to, like, you know, leave Larry. And, uh, you know, she, she, she seemingly doesn't. And, you know, they, they all depart. Um, then a year passes by. Alice is at home and Dan comes home says he was at a meeting with his editor tied a couple on but uh, things are a little weird and Dan admits that he's been having he was with Anna because for that past year he's been having sex with Julia Roberts and they have a big old fight and argument and Dan says I'm leaving you at the same time Larry comes back from a dermatology conference uh, and we find out that Anna and Larry have married. Um, Larry admits to his own infidelity and soon finds out that uh, Anna, for the past year, has been cheating on him with Dan, leading to... I... Leading to, to something that's caught... I, I, does this argument stand up? We'll talk about this later. Does this argument stand up in today's culture? Like, what no, Larry's it's doing? ridiculous. Like does no, I mean like can Larry say these things now? Sure. Because I don't there's there's nothing like demeaning it's not personal. sexually. Yeah. It's it's personal, but it's not like it's not like demeaning to yeah, the gender. Yeah, yeah. No no no, it's it's uh, so I suppose maybe that's what it meant to say. Although it's, it's it all does, very relevant to this. It does have like Julia Roberts line reading of it tasted like yours but sweeter is like probably her like compare it to like Cameron Diaz's reading of like I swallowed your cum. In like a very similar line in Vanilla Sky, mm-hmm. and it's like night and day. Like that's one. That, this, this is the one movie where I'm like, Julie Roberts can act, I guess. She's good. Mm-hmm. I actually think Julie Roberts is pretty good in this. No, I think she's great in this, and it kind of it bums me out. It bummed out. It bummed me out back. Eighteen year old Mario. Yeah, it bummed out. Um, they all break up. You know, Alice goes back to she was she was a stripper before. She's mm-hmm. been working in a cafe. She goes back to stripping. Larry and and Anna separate, and Anna and Dan start a relationship. A few months later, Larry sees Alice at a strip club, and they have this kind of back and forth again. This very heated physical chemistry where Larry demands to know her name. He's rugged and slovenly and in a really 
bad place because he's truly still in love with Anna. And she says, I'm just Jane Jones. Just plain, my name is plain Jane Jones. Mm -hmm. Another time, every time those two are just in a scene together, I'm like, this is great. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I always get the impression that that Clive Owen perhaps was not making a movie at that moment. Do you? Because I get a, I get this impression that Clive Owen feels uncomfortable, like felt uncomfortable in that scene. And there's like maybe, a big rumors. Maybe. And I don't know. This is like maybe this is like one of those those cinematic urban legends that like Mike Nichols had nude like nude footage of Nicole uh, Nicole of Natalie Portman mm-hmm. and like burned it because he felt it was kind of like weird and exploitive, which I think like makes a lot of sense because yeah. it would have been it it already feels kind of like. It's on that line of being gross, and like, had you seen, the, like, had there been nudity, it would have felt like really gross. Yeah, we can go there later, but um, um, it's I, I, I think Clive Owen is fucking great in this movie. He's great, but it he feel like that one. That's the one scene where you can. It feels like Clive Owen, the actor, feels kind of uncomfortable for what he's doing. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, I suppose. I mean, because like, but Larry's movie. also supposed to feel uncomfortable what he's doing, well, but he's kind of like forcing it. He's not supposed to be be uncomfortable as much as he's supposed to be projecting or he's just conflicted because it's not it's not as easy as him just going to a strip club and then paying 500 quid for a woman to just do whatever he wants to quid that's that's what he did um for her for her to do whatever pounds the same thing i I don't know i'm not sure um never bother to look it up because i always think it and i never look it up i'm gonna look it up but uh it's not he's not just he's not just Doing that, you know, what I mean, he's not just paying a whore to sleep with him. He's there's like a, there's a history here, you know. What I mean, there's all this extra context that he's trying to wrap his head around while he's looking at her, you know, bending over all the way and you know, doing whatever it is that she's supposed to be doing. Um, what? <laughs> I really what thought. Is your face? I thought. Oh my god. Um, when it comes to quid versus, I I don't know. I, there was there was a long explanation there, and it wasn't clear to we me. We are out. I will come back on the conversions um, from quid to pound uh, later. Um, I don't know how much time has passed. I think in the, it's, it's another kind of like a year. I think um, Anna and Dan have been together. Maybe just it's a like few a few months. months. Yeah, because when when um, Aunt, when Alice and Dan break up, they had been together for three years, and then when they get back together later. It's their four Fourth year anniversary. Year, so it's only been like so there's like a, there's like twelve months, it's like of probably eight un- months or so, of, yeah. yeah, of uncertainty. In um, you know, Larry and Anna meet for coffee to sign the divorce papers, and you know, Larry's resistant. He's trying to get her back, and later Anna comes and says she got the divorce papers signed to Dan, and then reveals to Dan that she slept with Larry to get the divorce papers signed because that was the condition by which he would sign the divorce papers. Um, you know. Dan is, she says that that was it, but Dan doesn't believe her and just, you know, storms off and just pissed off. And, you know, Anna goes back to Larry and then downtrodden and sad. Dan goes to, to Larry to get Anna back. Uh, that scene, I believe, is our opening clip. It is. It's a heart. You ever see a heart? It's all like a fist covered, like a fist in, covered in blood. blood. Fuck you. Yeah. Um, oh, fuck off. Yeah. You writer. Yeah. You liar. The, the, you writer is like my favorite. The fact that he opens with you writer was like one of the best choices Patrick Marvel yeah. like chose in that script. Um, Larry tells him that Alice wants him back. 
uh, you know, that he's in love with her. Um, he does admit they did not sleep with her. Mm-hmm. And then Dan thanks him, and they kind of have like this little back and forth. But there's like this common ground as Dan leaving. Larry just digs one in by goes, you know. Oh yeah, I did. I did. I did. Fuck her. Sorry. I just, you know, sorry for lying to you, but I, you know, blah blah blah. Just and he ends with bastard. (laughs) Um. Then we cut to Dan and Alice together as they're planning a Alice bought him a trip to New York and seems thing to be on the mend, but. Dan can't get the fact like he did with Anna and Larry that that Alice, you know, can't admit that she slept with Larry, you know, and our, she keeps denying it. Um, and eventually he kind of like leaves to go get cigarettes and he comes back to apologize and Alice says, I don't love you anymore. Goodbye. Because that's the state the thing she had said earlier, like the best way to end a relationship is just to say, I don't love you anymore. Uh, goodbye. You know, when she says that, um, they have this argument. She spits on him. He goes to slap her. She says, you know, just do it, you fucker. And then she, he slaps her. Dan's left alone. Larry and Anna are kind of back together and see... I feel like that scene seems to suggest things are on the mend. I don't know. Part of me, it's unclear. Anna has been out of the movie by that point for... 20 minutes? For a while. And even though she's in those flashback scenes and stuff like that, it's... Before, yeah, the last scene that she has is is Ooh, those the Dan scenes and the flashback scenes with Larry, and then she's out of the movie for a couple of I major feel, scenes. I feel like we don't need the. I, I feel like we don't need that bed scene. I feel like we just don't need to see it. We just yeah, because we get a lot of information about what their life is like in they're that back scene together. with Larry in, and Dan. in the office. Yeah. yeah, like they're back together. That's fine. Her stories. We, her stories just to prove Dan's a real piece of shit. Uh, like at that point, um, Alice leaves to go to New York on her own and she's welcomed back by saying by a security guard who goes welcome back you know Jane Jones because it turns out her name is Jane Jones Jane Jones she's telling the truth to Larry $500 got, got the name and a weird level of respect I guess for, mm-hmm. for Larry and has Dan's walking walking around the old you know garden and park that they had first kind of walked through he sees the name on the board Alice Ayers who's a real person who like Saved three of her nieces from a fire and died in a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, Alice mentions that earlier, and it, you know, Alice Ayers was a, the name she had given Dan from the beginning. That's this fake sort of name. And we end with a uh, Jane Alice walking through the streets of New York as guys look at her. Yeah, which was a weird choice. Well, are we supposed to be? We're obviously supposed to be linking. It's the same song as the beginning. So we're play. supposed to be linking the. Beginning scene with the ending scene. Is there somebody on the other end of that, like, POV? You know what I mean? Because you know how Dan was on the other end? Is it just... No, this is what it is. Life? This is what it is, I think, actually. Thinking about it. And I hadn't thought about this before. So, before, when she's walking, staring at Dan, they see each other and they kind of move together. And, like, the entire part of the thing is just talking about immaturity. And how, like, she's... You know, I love you. Like when Larry says, I love you because you're a woman. After Anna kind of talks, why is there always motorcycles? So many motorcycles. Uh, Says, like, did you fancy her? And Larry admits, like, yeah. Because Larry's, if anything, but earnest except to Dan. Uh Says, yeah, I did fancy her. But, you know, she's still a girl and you're a woman. Um, That kind of beginning of, like, 
Jane assuming the identity of Alice, you know, just to have this kind of like identity mm-hmm. and then seeing, I think, I think the point is like she saw Dan and like instantly connected to that because of the need for identity. And the end is supposed to, I think the end might be supposed to say she's grown now to the point where well, she no longer, all these men are staring at her, but she's just walking forward her own woman. Is it the need for identity or is it like the need to be seen? Or the need to be seen. Yeah. yeah. Or the need for, the need to be loved, to be needed. Mm. Like, you know, that's the thing was like the entire point of it is like need versus like want versus yeah. everything. Um, so I came to this film in theaters in 2004. 2004 was the first year I, I needed to see everything in theaters. You know, you know, Team America, World Police, Collateral, this, Passion of the Christ. Collateral, you're so happy Collateral didn't make this list, aren't you? I fucking hate that movie, man. I love that movie, but Collateral actually ended up winning my best picture of that year. Oh, my God. I mean, I, some... I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like I'm alone now at this point. I think that movie fucking stinks, and I'm not... 100% sure what you or everyone at the ringer or like other people in my life see in that movie. Should we have a collateral discussion at some point? Sure. We have a 2004 discussion. 2004 is a good year. But I still like, so I saw these movies and Sideways. Um, and Sideways, I think, plays a role in this. Mm-hmm. But Closer was the one that struck me because there was this like, I wasn't really involved in like a, a relationship, relationship, like a heavily deep relationship that wasn't kind of just like, this high school thing until 2000, late 2004. No, sorry. 2005. Uh, wow. This is bad. 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. And so I came to this going like, Oh, this is what relationships are. This is what, this is a pontification as it were of relationships. This is relationships kind of on steroids in the sense of, yes, it's, it's theatrical, like this, this film has six speaking roles in total. I think the secretary and the customs agent mm. being the other two. Mm. Um, oh, and the the one woman that you never see who's talking at Larry when she's he's looking at Dan mm-hmm. and um, Anna. Um, so it feels like a series of bottle episodes. Like everything's very contained. Everything's very theatrical. Everything's yeah. very staged. But it felt as though it to me at the time who had no idea of like what an actual close relationship was I felt like it had the nuance of it and you so thought like, every re- good relationship ended with someone telling someone else to fuck off and die no but I, I felt <laughs> I felt as though this connection the thing I connected with was the scene where Dan like to 18 year old Mario Dan Wolf was like one of the biggest villains in the history of 2000s films. <laughs> you know, maybe he's not Captain Fatal or, you know, um, Anton Chigar levels, mm-hmm. but like he's up there because like he has these things, he has like this, this relationship that well, like immature and not nuanced is still like wholesome. And, and like, and, and you find, and you go to find out that it's not, like in the end, like that that she's been lying to him all along, but still not necessarily out of malice, but out of a sense of discomfort. Um, but that hotel scene always resonated with me, mm-hmm. where she's just kind of like laying on top of him and just like expressing all these things and just kind of like open and vulnerable, and she's going to take him on a vacation, and 
then he kind of like just focuses on this one thing. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, like you have this, this woman who's like clearly after you've been a piece of shit to her, like willing to take you back. And like, I connected with that and then he hits her and I'm like, Oh, you motherfucker. You know? And then I looked at like somebody like Larry and I was like, yeah, there's some deep flaws in there. Like maybe, uh, after Anna admits I've cheated on you, go like, one moment, ma'am, I am going to put on a jacket, go outside, possibly grab like a beer, calm down, come back, and then we're going to have an argument where maybe I don't care about how many times you came. Like, I'm going to think it, but maybe I'm not going to outwardly express yeah. it. Well, that's... But like Larry kind of, to me, like represented this kind of more earnestness, like, like, like. The way I first saw this and the way I connected was like Larry was like this earnest, vulnerable, vulnerable person outwardly. Alice. But I think that's Jane true. Jane was like, yeah, and I, I still think that holds up. And, and Jane was like this, but I thought this was how relationships had to work. Like they had to have these weird lanes. And I got angry about like, I thought Anna, I mean, my natural prejudice for you know, Julie Roberts aside, I felt Anna was just kind of a conflicted character who was kind of like wishy-washy in what she wanted. Um, but I didn't necessarily see her as a villain. I just thought she was kind of a jerk. But Larry was also a dick and a jerk, mm-hmm. you know? But, like, it was the natural kind of, like, growing pains of that relationship. Well, not natural growing pains. She was definitely a jerk, but she was a victim of this kind of, like, stalwart manipulation that was... From who? Dan. Oh, like Dan. I, I think ultimately we can say Dan's like the villain of this. Well, there's the only there's reason any I, moments we go like, oh, poor Jude Law. The, there's definitely no moments where I say moments where I say poor Jude Law. But I know the only reason I don't think Dan is a villain because I think he's just too pathetic to be a villain. He's just like everything. You mama's boy. Yeah, and that's the problem with that line is that it's one hundred percent true. So Dan is just kind of like castrated as a as a character like he's that's not, that's not to attack the masculinity of him but just no, to attack no, no. Like, as like a, a personality he's, he's he's the point of Dan is that he is needs to be seen not even no not even that he needs to you be seen which I, he probably does need to be seen but I think the point of Dan is that he's lives in this weird kind of fantasy world where everything so when he says like oh you think the heart is just like a diagram he lives in a world where like you make you make analogies to what, like, someone thinks the heart is. You know what I mean? You th- or that you connect love to, like, an actual image of the heart. There's a moment in um, Doubt. Remember John Patrick Shanley's Doubt? Mm-hmm. Remember the movie Doubt? Where, like, there's the one priest. Who's the good priest in that movie? Oh, gosh. Keep, so it's Philip talking. Seymour Hoffman's, like, the, is, is, you know, the guy that's supposed to be touching the kids. And then there's the, the, the other priest. Um, or Amy Adams. Amy Adams is sitting on a bench. No, yeah. And so, you know. Well, yeah, Amy Adams is the, the sister. She's right. kind of like the... But I'm thinking it's it's this, that's the moment. Yeah, is yeah. that, so, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman walks outside and Amy Adams is sitting on a bench and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman sees a bird and he's like, what kind of bird is that? He's like, is that, he's like, is that a, is that a starling? He's like, is that a grackle? And she's like, I think it's just this. You know what I mean? I think it's just 
Blackburn or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So there's this dichotomy between like how one person sees the world and how the like the actual reality of the world. You know what I mean? Like Philip Seymour Hoffman walks out of the the church and he's like, "That's a starling. That's a grackle." You know what I mean? These very like linguistically. With these words with these like linguistic flourishes, and Amy Adams is like, no, that's just fucking this. Jude Law exists on this level where like love is, love is a, uh, uh, you know, love can be represented by these visual images like like what a heart is, and like you don't understand love and disarming and, like euphemisms, right? And disarming and and Larry is there to be like, no, love is this. Love is actual work. Like love is is actually being honest like the only actual honest person in this whole movie is larry and he's done some fucked up shit but he's like always very upfront about it and even when he he lies to dan for like two minutes and then he's like yeah i gotta tell you the truth like i couldn't do it i couldn't i, I couldn't i couldn't keep it from him. even then like it the build-up that just you know his so that's where I feel like interesting. Uh, yeah, because I feel like Dan, for that reason, like Dan is never a true villain because he's just there to be fucking stepped on. Like everyone is just stepping all over him the whole time, and then it, the movie ends with him getting stepped on. Even like, when everyone's gone, everyone's gone. He's getting stepped on again. Like he's been living. So people have been lying to him. You know what I mean? Or people have been lying around him, but he's actually been living a lie. You know what I mean? And he's got a. Con- the next stage of his life is has to be confronting the fact that for the last four years his whole life has been like not real, and I guess he got a novel out of it that sucked. Um, I mean, Clive Owen and Julie Roberts liked it. Yeah, but it's interesting you bring that point up. I call this the first film in the quadrilogy of Mario growing to realize he doesn't know anything about love, ladies. Um, and uh, I wanted to use this to capture like all four of these films because I think this this movie's the, the strongest of the features and it, it being the kind of like catalyst for everything. Mm-hmm. It it needs it's the one that deserves to be on this list. But it created this weird sense of like I can do things. I do it better. I know I do it better. Do what relationships? Oh, yeah, okay. I said I knew I'd do relationships better. So I, I, my first like really serious relationship was like in 2005, 2006. I was dating this girl. She wasn't great. It ended on Valentine's Day at a Denny's when she said, you know what? I had been published in a college journal for writing, got a $100 prize. Um, and she you said- You had? Yeah, I had. Okay. Uh, it was a pawn neon. You read that. I showed you that story. Mm-hmm. The one with the thing. Yeah, that's fine. I actually still like that story. Um, she said, you're not that good of a writer to me. She said, you're really not that great. And I was like, you could say a lot of shit to me. When like I put like hours into something, you say you're not that good of a writer. That, that's going to dig deep. Mm-hmm. And so I cut all communication with her. I didn't break up with her. I refused to return any of her text or phone calls and didn't talk to her for two months. And two months later, she's like, I really need to talk to you. And I was like, fine. And I was like, I'm and I've ended this because you said I wasn't a good writer. Mm-hmm. Which is a completely the immature nonsense thing to do, but I was fucking like, I was right. You can't do that to me. And 2006 kind of goes around, and 
you know, I'm, I'm single still for a while. I'm not seeing anybody. And then in September, a movie comes out that I really need to see because I feel as though this is going to respond to my language of love. It's going to respond to the certitude and moral certitude I need. And that movie is the one you're going to laugh at. It is the Tony Goldwyn-directed, Paul Haggis, Zach Braff-written adaptation of Ultima Baco, The Last Kiss. <laughs> yeah. It's a good one. <laughs> and uh, we, we shit on Zach Braff a lot for his Garden State stuff. Uh, this movie stinks, but for a 20-year-old kid who is yeah. convinced that he was right all along with that, um, this is the film that made me go like, no. Like, moral certainty. Like, in that film, you know, like, he, like Zach Braff obviously stars in it because it's fucking, he's got a star in it. You know, he cheats on his like pregnant fiance or maybe there's maybe just girlfriends in it. Um, I think they're just, they're just his girlfriend. He cheats on her with like a college student because he's afraid of getting old, even though he's only 30. Um, and I was like, oh, that's a piece of shit thing. But then he, like, asks for forgiveness and whatnot. And there's, like, this entire moment where he's just staying outside of her house. And eventually she accepts him in. And I was like, she shouldn't have accepted him in. You know, I'm like, that guy's a piece of shit. You know, and I don't think that's what Zach Braff is going for. I don't think Zach Braff is going for that. Um, but I was like, I still do relationships better. I know the right thing to do. Like, that's not the right. Like, she's wrong. He's a piece of shit. And I'm... I'm right. Mm. I know how to do relationships right. Like, all these films are showing to me is that I know what women want. Like, Mel Gibson. I know what they need. You know. Um, Helen Hunt's. You know what's funny? I don't have any relationship movies in my on my list. Relationships are such a huge part of my life, which is crazy because the biggest anxiety I have in my life and the reason I go to therapy is because of relationships. It's funny because like my number say like take my number three for instance, like is about like a relationship, but it's a relationship that really like speaks to like a, a certain idea of the self more so than it does like about how one tackles with relationships. Well, the humorous thing is I think if any of my friends could say like if you could change one thing about Mario what would it be is like the way he fucking freaks out about relationships. Hmm. Like, I think you would even say that. Yeah. Well, you would say like talk to that woman, blah blah blah, do that. Anyways, I, the way you handle non-relationships. Yeah, exactly. The way I handle like oh. Anyway, go ahead. Um but it gave me this kind of like more rigid moral certitude. Uh-huh. And I was like, I know it. And I like lived that movie. And every time I felt like I got slighted or whatnot, I never felt that. But every time I didn't do anything about our relationship, I put on the last kiss soundtrack, mm-hmm. like the entire soundtrack and just listened to it while drunk and cry. Ladies. Um, you know, and that's kind of like the the way I operated with it. It's like, I know this. I know this well, and I know this right. And then, you know, the next movie pops up that I think is going to lock me into that viewpoint, lock me into that dogma of like, yeah, I know what's right. I know the expectations. I know the certainty. I know what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know that my mindset is the right one. I can be like this guiding star in relationships once I just find the right person and not not necessarily like once the you know not too like, like yeah, once yeah, a girl yeah. accepts it, but more like once I have the confidence in someone to pursue them, like I'll be this great partner, mm-hmm. you know. Um, 
I knew it was like my fault for like not pursuing people. But I was like, I was convinced like once it happened, like I would be like the best thing to happen in their life. And that's when I saw Mark Webb's 500 Days of Summer. Which is a good movie. A good movie. But a big point of that movie is like, what the fuck are you saying? You don't know anything. You always have these expect, And like a big point of it is, you know, that beginning of the relationship and like that expectation. You know, a like great scene that's the expectation versus reality scene. Mm-hmm. Like one of the kind of best scenes in terms of romance films geared towards men, I think, ever. Because it's one absolute true. Mm. And it... it it deals with this like toxic kind of idea of, of what relationships are, you know, and you know, he's not, um, you know, Joe Scorn Levitt's uh, Tom isn't necessarily a bad guy. He's flawed and just kind of growing into an adult and growing into understanding what a relationship mm-hmm. is. Um, but he definitely looks at summer and sees her as like this kind of like thing that he's perfect for. And he doesn't understand why she's like turned, why it doesn't work out, you know? And he just, is utterly overwhelmed by like why it didn't work out. And, you know, even in the end when he sees Mika Kelly's autumn, he's kind of like kind of going back on that course, but you get the sense that there's at least a growth. There's at least, at least a self establishment. Mm-hmm. And that kind of shook that dogma. That went like, well, maybe I don't really know it. Like if I'd be the best type, maybe I'm convinced myself on the best type because I've had this like narcissistic moment Maybe, like, I need the experience, and maybe I need to have the thought process. But I still, like, but ultimately, I think, like, I'm better than most. You know, I still have this kind of, like, weird sense of, like, projection. Yeah, yeah, And then the final movie. The final movie is Quadrilogy that finally broke me and said, like, Mario, shut the fuck up. You don't know anything. Was um, the Jonathan Dayton, Valerie Ferris 2012 movie written by Zoe Kazan. So you needed a you, woman to write something to uh-huh. tell me, like... And you've heard this movie a thousand times. Yeah. Ruby Sparks. Yeah. Um, which is kind of like that create, you know... It's uh, Paul Dano as Calvin kind of writing Ruby, uh, Zoe Kazan, into creation. And thinking he's going to be, like, the perfect partner for her. Realizing that she has her own identities and that a relationship is a two-way street. And that things are not as easy and complex and that, you know, what... Even though you, you as the me as Mario could be per, not perfect, but me as Mario might be a good fit for somebody, doesn't necessarily mean I'm a good fit for everybody I'm attracted to. Mm. It was the movie that made me go like, "You fucking moron! Just stop holding yourself as better than other people, or stop like having yourself the thought process of like I would do it better, and I'm this isn't fair, and just be like shut the fuck up." Mm. The quadrilogy. But closer. That's that just, I want to be very catalyst. honest with you. It's it's an interesting quadrilogy because it starts in the worst place possible, and ends maybe in like the best place possible. You know what I mean? Like closer is the roughest movie of all. <laughs> of all, of, it's comparing like comparing Larry to any of the people that are in any of these other movies is really like. I don't know, Calvin's a pretty awful person in Ruby Sparks. But he's not Larry. Larry, like, what, like... Like, just in the way that Larry, like, consumes women. Like, he's... Dan, you mean? No, no, no. Oh, Larry. Oh, right. Larry. I'm just, I'm just, like, talking in terms of not... See, so here's... It's an interesting perspective. I... Dan is a non-person for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In this movie. I think... I think... I don't Pathetic, think... yeah. I don't think Jude Law... I think Jude Law is all right. Um, I think actually he plays like the milk toast 
like piece of shit. Like you say piece of shit in like like a villainous way. I say piece of shit. Well, in I saw not, as I saw him as villainous. Now right, I see right. him as pathetic. Right, but I'm saying like in terms of like how I originally saw him, like just not worth the effort to I even mean, think about because he's just so nothing. Him slapping her is just like she just goes like yeah, go fuck you. like even though it's like a like a period on the relationship. It's just like him trying to assert control because he has nothing. Well, that's the, that's the beauty of that. I mean, not to say that a man slapping a woman is a beautiful scene, but the beauty of that scene is that he try, like you said, he tries this one, one last assertion of power thing to just say like, "I'm something," and she's just like, "Nope, no, you're not," and like. It's like an ellipsis. Go back to that park, motherfucker. But the thing, it's like an ellipsis <laughs> that kind of carries through like the rest of the movie, so that when he ends up at that park, he's just like, "Oh yeah, I'm not. I'm not anything. I'm total garbage. I'm not any kind of a person." And that's. It's interesting to start from um, your quadrilly from a movie that's whose emotions are so severe. You know what I mean? In like every direction, everything like hurts so much. All these people hurt each other. So, I mean, it's stupid. It's just their relationships. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. But they're just hurting each other and hurting each other and hurting each other in, like, the most significant ways that they can find to do it. And then, like, you move to this and it's like, I manifested Ruby. And then she became her own person. Right. And then... It's just so... It's like... to the side. The juxtaposition between those two things are, like, so, so interesting. The two extremes of, of, of your quadrilogy. Well, especially since, like, in the end, like, Calvin grows to be realized, like, he doesn't know fucking anything. Like, mm-hmm. in the end of Ruby Sparks. Like, he has, you know, he's been a monster to Ruby at that point. Um, by the end of that, he's, you know, he doesn't, he's, he's accepted the fact that he doesn't know how things are going to go. Mm-hmm. Like, he's, he's fully... In, in Closer, there's this manipulation to get there, to get to, like, the final end. Um, like, everyone's playing this big chess game. In Last Kiss, it's Zach Braff and Paul Haggis manipulating it to the end they want, that she opens the door and whatnot um, for him. It's it's kind of like the quintessential, like, man, mani- like man manipulation yeah, yeah. of relationship. To Five Hundred Days of Summer, where it's like he's getting there, but he's not there. To Ruby Sparks, where it feels like... He's not going to be perfect at it, but he's fucking at least giving himself up to it. Mm. Interesting. This is very interesting. Yeah. It's kind of a fascinating, like, study. I've read an essay about it. Of no, but just... The therapist is going to listen to this and be like, that's... The lie. psychology of... Mara, uh, stop watching movies. Yeah, but that's the thing. So, like, we talk... Well, that's, about- that's my big thing. Like, the film is... is as a deeply psychological experience. Well, we had this conversation about being John Malkovich. And most of my list, like, coming up, like, a lot of the things coming up on my list are, like, just deeply. Um, We're not going to talk, like, I think, like, almost every five films is a deeply psychological thing for me. Mm. Like, my number 25 and my number 21 and then a lot of films that pop up after that are just deeply psychological films for me that have a deep psychological impact on, like, the way I kind of like created life around me. Mm, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I mean, we're both kind of, we're both, uh, I think having like similar discussions, but 
the the context for both of them are, are are different. You know what I mean? The, I always the wonder if this is like different. a thing. I don't. Know, I don't want to. I'm going to say this. Maybe it's because I'm on my third 8.8 Lagunitas. Like this is a thing I think people don't really ever focus on in film. Is like the importance of just seeing movies, no matter where you are in life, are like feeling like you're at a certain point in life, and feeling like when I saw Closer, like and like uh, throughout the totality of my like life, like. The importance of like finding a partner has been been big on me, mm-hmm. like, as you see with the continuous joke. So like coming in a closer, like I was seeking that out, and like I don't think people ever mention the importance of film, like like I guess film therapy is a thing, but the importance of like when you're having a trouble, or maybe when you're having like a conflict in some part of your life, like seeking out film that kind of responds to that, and just letting you, yourself giving yourself over to like different viewpoints or just yeah. immersing yourself in that. Well, this is the one thing I, I mean, I feel like this is true of all art. I think people try yeah, all art in general. I think people try the films just like the most palpable. Well, palpable? I think it's yours. You know what I mean? Cause I feel like this way with books too. Um, well books. Yeah. Where to an extent. I, and uh, it used to be music a little bit, but not anymore. I've kind of moved on from music, which is like weird to say, but, um, like for film, I think people spend too much time either just like wanting to have like whatever the quintessential film experience is, or they spend too much time trying to unpack movies. Like I remember I was watching Invisible Man today, and there's in the very first shot of the movie, you know, it's all water. Like the credits are like splashing and like drips off the thing, and then they That's show such the, a goofy looking, and movie. they show the clock, and like right under the clock, it's kind of like wavy, like it's like reflected ocean type thing, and I was like, oh, what does that mean? And then, like, within one second, I was like, stop worrying about what that reflection of the clock means. You know what I mean? Because like, I, can, I can sit here all day and wonder, like, there's a definite ladder thing going on in this movie. There's three ladders in this movie. Or four ladders. There's, there's four scenes with ladders in this movie. Is there a ladder thing happening in this movie? What the fuck would ladders represent in this thing? I have no idea. I'm going to guess that they didn't realize that they were putting so many, like, so much emphasis on the ladder. And they're just like, a ladder needs to be here for set design purposes. Or they're just like, a ladder needs to be here because, like, she needs to get up into this thing. But then she's going to have a ladder in the very beginning. And she's going to twist the camera around with the ladder. And then there's going to be the old ladder, which is going to inspire the new ladder. And then, you know, Sydney's going to walk up the ladder to get the thing. But then, you know, uh, blah, 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 blah. doesn't matter. Um you can spend all yeah, your time yeah. doing, like, thinking about this stuff when you're watching a movie. And the same thing can happen when you're reading a book. You can just, like, think about how every every piece of this thing, like the language or the punctuation or, like, the structure or the aesthetics of it or whatever, like, how it all integrates into this whole and what that whole represents and what the metaphors are and, like, all this other stuff. Or you could just kind of sit back and, like, let a movie just happen. And I think the interesting thing about these two movies is that I think they were saying something that neither of us necessarily had the means to say that we were... We didn't have the means to translate it at the time. You know what I mean? It Mm. was only through, like, seeing more things and living more life that we were able to say, like, well, this movie spoke to this aspect of something that was obviously on my mind, but I didn't know that it was on my mind. Or this was able to speak to, to define some aspect of my personality, which I wasn't aware of yet, which I came, became aware of through being, being alive and doing stuff and meeting people and having experiences and yeah, things like that. Like, um, like, in between seeing those movies, I had, like, one other serious relationship that ended up ending because I moved across country, you know, and... 
but that also shaped like my nuance of like realizing that things weren't going to be perfect. You know? Right. And like, I was ready at that point to like break that dogma of like, oh, there was compromise and meeting of the middles and whatnot. And well, that's one of the interesting things about my, my movie next week is that like I thought that my next week's movie represented some kind of ideal of of human like achievement or a human understanding of the self. But through experience, I realized that that's not necessarily true. What what is true for one person is not true for everybody. You know what I mean? What's mm. what is understood to be a universal aspect of like relationships, which is one of the reasons I think that closer doesn't work like as a script, is because I think they're just I think they just laid on the gross stuff as um one shocking, but two as kind of like universe, like unspoken things that everyone thinks about all the time, which is just like not really true. You know what I mean? It's just it's just there. To, it's actually just there to shock. It's not it's there, there to be yeah, provocative. It's not there to be representative of anything. Although I think that they were hoping that it would be representative of like the a, a person's natural inclination when dealing with a relationship yeah, to wonder I'm a about these things. Animal. Right, which is true. He is a caveman. Ooh. Fucking caveman. Yeah. I always want to say um, animal. Oh, yeah, I think he calls man. himself, or Jude Law calls him an animal later. Yeah. Um, which I, we, we actually, I think we hear, I think I left that part in the opening. Um, but you don't, you don't, you don't know until you, until you see it. You don't know until you confront it, both in art, if you're, if you're inclined that way. And I feel weird for people that aren't inclined that way. And I guess, in, but also in real life. You know what and I mean? That's, that's why I say, like, what's interesting is I say the movie for next week hits me in, in our special episode we're going to do is the fact that, like, it hits that language in a way that it's not I don't have an entry point. I feel completely and utterly foreign to it mm. and detached from it, but, like, I accept it. Yeah, I, I accept its its, its vertitude and, 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 you know, just because of the fact that... Um, it feels so earnest. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I hope tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> I really hope I'm not overselling it. <laughs> yeah, I also hope you're not overselling that. I'm just like, oh, it's okay. One of those things. And the one, the one good thing is when I saw it, like the, we're talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, by the way, to, to talk about what we're going to talk about next week. When I saw it, I saw it with like the very first showing in Connecticut. <sighs> So we had a Yale, and I'll, I'll bring this up again next week. Um, mm. We had a, the Yale like film, some of the Yale film professors, and yep. it was introduced by like one of the, I think it, one of like the alumnus professors, I think, because um, there's an entire Q and A I didn't stay for afterwards, mm -hmm. and like he thanked like the guy that owns Madison Art Cinema for bringing it because like nobody wanted to bring it for some reason. For a while, because they didn't think it was going to do well, because okay. they thought the subject matter wouldn't attack, which who knows? I mean, uh, it's staying for a couple weeks in. It's staying still in Criterion for another week, so. Oh, good. Um, but he's wow, like, it's going like, to match. It's going to stay one week less than pizza, a love story. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it didn't lose any showings, at least. Um, I'm going to probably see it again. Neither this did past weekend. pizza, a love story. I mean, that's at least set in New Haven. All right, hold on. I think I didn't like when he was so he was when he was introducing it, he was like, I don't want to oversell this, but this is like one of the greatest films I've ever seen. And he's huh. like, I've seen a lot of movies. And I sat there going like, ah, oh, you fuck. Like, don't say that. 
Like, that's, like, now, like, I had high expectations going into it. I mean, once again, this is spoiling my opinions on this for next week. Um, that increased my expectations, and I tried to temper them. And then, still, if, like, my expectations were here. Yeah. You know. Good. Yeah. All right. But, like I said, I think, I think it's, it's interesting because it's still, it's an evolving theme. Like, mm-hmm. this, like, like, because the entire idea, like, I, I assume eventually when I have, like, a relationship that is permanent, like, I'll still be attracted to this kind of film and, like, want to improve my language on it. Sure, or improve, sure, sure, like, sure. My, my depth on it just because, like, it is the weird thing that I've always been important to me. Mm. And... Like well, that's yeah, it like won't stop step. being important to you. You'll just respond to these things. Different. They'll still be important yeah. to you. Yeah, exactly. It'll just be the new thing. Um, yeah. Good. Closer was, the, closer was the good catalyst for it. Awesome. I'm sure Little Giants maybe was earlier. Where I was like, Icebox. Me and my kids just watched The Mighty Ducks over the weekend. It was a fairly you, standard you tell, experience. You didn't tell them about Goldberg? No. Goldberg in current day? Part of me wanted to, like, wanted to tell my wife like every 10 seconds, like, Goldberg is in rough shape now. But, like, I couldn't... Like, it, like, Joshua Jackson's doing okay. It was a thing that popped into my head, like, every 10 seconds, like, Goldberg is in rough shape. Millie Estevez is okay. Joshua Jackson is a pretty good... I guess, he's doing good for himself. I don't know what Averman's doing, but Goldberg is in rough shape. I don't know what this, I don't know what Tommy and Tammy are doing. But Goldberg... Goldberg's... Goldberg's tough. Goldberg needs to stay away from methamphetamine. <sighs> yeah. If you also want to stay away from methamphetamines, this is not funny. Distract yourself. It wasn't a joke. I just didn't know a segue because reason this talk talking about that. It's yeah. a sad story. It's a really sad story. It is sad. Meth sucks. I know a lot of people who got hit by meth. Fuck meth. Well, it's not. It's not sad because he's like part of our childhood either. It's just a person, yeah. and it's just like this shit ate him up. So, yeah. But uh, if you want to talk about something that is film and lighter, or you know, more serious, because film can be serious. You could do so at our Twitter, at Film Pivotal. One day, when I'm so enamored, I will, t- you know, tweet for like six straight days, and I'll forget about it again. Yeah, that's because okay. I'll get caught up in economic theory or something. I like don't that. think we've tweeted in like a month, so. Yeah, I think you tweet last. Like it was like an old tweet since like one tweet was like a test, and then you said like, I realized I don't know how to do this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. Or you can go to Pivotal Film. You can email us at Pivotal Film Podcast like said, like, gmail.com. It's 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 a sociopathy thing. Like well, Twitter's like a to, weird sociopathy. Yeah. You either thing. have to be like fully invested in it, or you just aren't. So like we'll post the links like, to the thing, but like I'm not sure what else like to if do. There was like a weird community of people responding to us. Like I think I'd respond to it just because like that's fun to do. But like I feel like Twitter. It's like this weird thing where it's like, oh, like, we're just like, yelling I, into like I'm a yelling, pit. But like, who cares? Like, but like, looking for like feedback on it. But it's like, I don't know. It's yeah. just like it's it's it's, it's, soci- it's like sociopathy. It's, yeah. It's it's like what I always say. Like every person that runs for president, it's a crazy person. Yeah. And evil because they're all sociopaths. Yeah. Because you don't think you can be president unless you're a sociopath. If you want to be president, you can email us at pivotalfilmpodcast@gmail.com and tell us why you think you're a good candidate. <laughs> Um, and why you're not a sociopath. I really hope Tulsi Gabbard does so. Oh, my God. There were so many Tulsi Gabbard signs in South Carolina. Billboards. Not just, like, signs on the road. Billboards. It helped her out in South Carolina. Oh, my God. Uh, or we still have our phone line open, 475-777-2450. Tell us what your I'll pivotal start, film I'll is. forcing people to Tell us, um, you know, why you like Tulsi Gabbard. 
Uh, tell us why you support Confederate flags along the side of the road in South Carolina. Oh, you know what? He didn't support Tulsa Gabbard. We're going to delete those other messages. <laughs> um, but yeah, until... We burn those messages. Next week, we're talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So, um, uh, if and the entire filmography of uh, Cecile. Uh, yeah, uh, Siyama. Siyama, yeah. Um, so you should see those. Drink some beers and, well, French beers. And yeah. We'll or, or maybe not French beers. It depends on if those French beers supported Roman Polanski's win. That's true. Because um, if they do, you can just put those beers down and walk out on them and scream bravo. Yeah, or you can just throw them at them. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>